Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture whether you like it or not. I'm with Warren today, and we're going to talk about the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles is probably the most important event of the last 200 years, uh, arguably, whether and in some ways more important than the outcome of, of World War II in 1945, because the Treaty of Versailles shaped the whole world ever since. So first, I'm just going to give some background information. I'm, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from this book by William Kylor uh, called Legacy of the Great War. So the peace conference that terminated the Great War counts as a unique episode in the history of international relations. Never before or since have so many prominent statesmen convened for such an extended period of time to address such a complex set of political, economic, and security issues. The highest ranking representatives of 27 countries, a accompanied by hundreds of political advisors, military aides, economic experts, translators, geographers, historians, and journalists, converged on the city of Paris two months after the armistice of November 11, 1918, to devise a peace settlement that would redraw the map of Europe and revise the political and economic arrangements in much of the rest of the world. The leaders of the four countries whose armies had defeated the Central Powers, Woodrow Wilson, David Lord George, George Clemenceau, Vittorio Orlando put aside their domestic political duties and remained at the conference site for six months during the winter and spring of, tw of 1919 to codify the rules that would govern the, the post-war international order. The fruits of their deliberations would appear in the form of peace treaties with the five defeated powers signed and sealed in various suburbs of Paris. So it's a, the Treaty of Versailles, the main one, that's the one, one with Germany. And then you also had uh, Treaty of Sevres with Turkey and Trianon with Hungary and uh, Saint-Germain with Austria. So Warren, I want to give the sort of the, the Nazi historical perspective on this because the, the conventional narrative on this is, is as usual kind of dumb. Well, you and, know what? Let me, let me stop you right there. I, I, it's funny because I Googled this Treaty of Versailles and, uh, there was, you know how they have like people ask different things. And one of the first things, how did the Treaty of Versailles lead to World War II? And it's funny because this is basically like the conventional wisdom and it's actually fairly close to the Nazi interpretation. It, it's, it, the answer is, that's listed here. The Treaty of Versailles led to World War II because its terms punished Germany harshly. The economy collapsed, the government lost power, the military was weak, and the Germans were angry. Because of these factors, Germans became loyal to Hitler, and there was the perfect storm in Germany which caused World War II. I mean, that's just some, yeah, some okay. bozo on the internet, but it's like, that. that's... When I learned about it in high school, I was just surprised to what extent the that's just the accepted view of the Treaty of Versailles, which which is really close to the Nazi interpretation of the Treaty of Versailles. It's not, I mean, I would say that the uh, kind of historical agreement over what this treaty did, what its failings were, where it was wrong, the historical consensus on it is much closer than any kind of historical agreement about for instance the end of world war ii you know like the potsdam and i mean even though the, the the even though the agreements at the end of world war ii actually did far worse things than the treaty of versailles i mean i mean i would argue that what was agreed on by the allies after world war ii was worse in terms of being more cruel more bloodthirsty more uh just punitive harsh sadistic evil 
than anything with uh, Versailles. But there's this like historical um, amnesia over what happened at the end of World War II, where we just like assume that was the good war and we all settled things in a good way. But whereas World War I, there's like a historical memory that clearly the Treaty of Versailles was bad because it led to World War II. Which is strange because I think now they're having to, uh, Hollywood and the media are starting to revise that a little bit. They yeah. have to kind of go back and, and justify World War One. Yes. Because if yes. people have if people have the, the Nazi point of view on the Versailles Treaty being a problem, then everything else follows. Everything else that. starts to follow. The the main way that it the conventional view differs from the Nazi view is on the the stab in the back. Right. So the idea that Germany could have kept fighting. Uh, well, the stab in the back idea is basically that Germany could have kept fighting or at least could have had more leverage and could have gotten a better deal out of the treaty, out of the, uh, the armistice and then later the treaty than they got. Whereas the you will usually hear the stab in the back theory called a legend, the stab in the back or a, uh, a conspiracy theory or something. And this will be predicated on a sort of a straw man position that the that will they'll set up well they'll say well the germans thought that they could win the war that they could you know take paris and and knock the british out and force the, the you know the british and the americans to their knees and of course that was ridiculous and nobody alleged nobody alleged that right uh, so this this is uh yeah this is probably the most important point like if we're going to cover one thing we should deal with this um I'm looking at, I've got a bunch of books here in front of me. I'm also looking at the Wikipedia uh, stab in the back here. And it's funny because it says that the stab in the back conspiracy theory, Nazi propaganda depicted Weimar Germany as a morass of corruption, degeneracy, national humiliation, ruthless persecution of the honest national opposition, 14 rules, years of rule by Jews, Marxists, and cultural Bolsheviks who had at last been swept away by the national socialist movement and the victory of the national revolution. But that this was established, the Weimar Republic, by the November criminals who had stabbed the nation in the back in order to seize power. Um, that, and they say that that's like the official Nazi history. And they say historians inside and outside of Germany unanimously reject the myth, pointing out that the Imperial German army was out of reserves, was being overwhelmed by the entrance of the United States into the war, and had already lost the war militarily by late 1918. So this gets at exactly what you just said, Greg, as far as is first of all is that true well we know for for instance that there was a change of government in germany at the end of the war right so november november 9th 1918 yes two days before the armistice two days before the armistice kaiser out republic in uh you know it's worth pointing out that that dynasty that the kaiser wilhelm was a part of was the same dynasty as frederick the great so this is you know, a 200 year old, no, even older, the great elector, I yeah, mean, the great elector, yeah. his grand, his grandfather, right? Was it his great, great I mean, yeah, the, the great elector. Yeah. He's so, like 1630s, 40s, 1630s. So all throughout the entire history of, yeah, the Napoleonic Wars through the, 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 uh, the seven years war and the everything culminating up to, you know, the, 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 the Franco Prussian war, everything culminating with the establishment of Germany as a country and then uh, Bismarck's Germany, and then up to 1918, 
it was this same royal house in control of Germany. And they and I've traced it back because when we were doing, when we were talking about uh, that prince that was killed in Napoleon's time, who was the nephew of Frederick the Great, I, I was looking at the family tree and I was like, holy crap, it's amazing how this is, you can trace the family tree right down to the Kaiser in World War I. Uh, so this is major. This is a major change of government, and there's no doubt that this republic was established. There's no doubt that there were all kinds of uh, Democrats, liberals, communists, socialists who who were had been agitating power. for war for or agitating for uh, a change of government for a coup d'état for months. Yes. yes. And, yeah. And they came into power before the armistice armistice was signed. So before the armistice was signed, even uh, the Kaiser was out. And that's very important. Uh, so, you know, that that's that's fact. That's not a question of interpretation. So that's a fact. So what caused this to happen? What, you know, we're going to make this show about the Treaty of Versailles, not the end of the war. But you and I were just brushing up on some of the last months of the war there. And, uh, you know, the, the German army was asking for an armistice. Uh, Ludendorff was proposing an armistice, was saying that the war can't be won. So they were already admitting that the war cannot be won militarily in terms of beating the French, beating the English, beating the Americans. But what happened was because of the unrest on the home front, which of course Hitler talks about this in Mein Kampf, and this is the Nazi, this is maybe the Nazi narrative that you're talking about. Jews, communists, socialists, liberals were the ones organizing the strikes the walkouts, the defeatism at home that led to this change of government that led to the Kaiser being forced to uh, step down and that led to the establishment of this republic. So that's a statement of fact that they had a change of government here and then the armistice was signed and then the peace treaty wasn't formalized till like a year later. Um, there, there are a couple. I want to throw in a couple of details there on yeah. the, the deception that went into getting the German government to sign the armistice. Yeah. So I read a few chapters from Raymer's book, uh, Otto Ernst Raymer's uh, Krieg Hetze gegen Deutschland, Warmongering Against Germany. And this is the book we talked about, uh, William and I talked about in our first episode a few months ago, where we, we talked about the origins of the first world war and we, we talked about what Raymer had to say about that and compared it with some other historians but so i i'm now I'm, i've read the chapters from that book about the the uh the Trag, the shame treaty of versailles that uh as as Raymer gives it and he points out a couple things and, and the other book that talks about this that's extremely rare but it is available in english is leon de grell's uh hitler born at versailles and both these books, I haven't read the uh, much of the the DeGrell one, but I've read a good amount of the Raymer one, and they give a lot of the same information and the same arguments. So one of these points that they both make is that the when the German negotiator went to talk to the French, uh, and you know November ninth, November tenth, nineteen eighteen, to have have a uh, an armistice, a, a stop shooting agreement, he got a message from berlin and it was signed reichskanzler reichskanzler schloss and the french looked at this and they were like who the who the hell is schloss who the hell is reichskanzler schloss 
And then the, the German representative and, and the French thought this was like a, a some kind of bullshit the Germans were doing. And the, the German, the guy on uh, the ambassador, the negotiator right, standing right there didn't know who the chancellor was because the government had been overthrown. And he had to explain like Schluss means stop in like a telegram language like, you know, uh, how you say stop in telegrams like that's what schluss means so the so the telegram had been signed reich's chancellor no name given end stop right and so then the the german negotiators didn't even know what was going on in berlin and the government wasn't even there was no reich's chancellor and the, the basically the guy giving orders was not actually legitimately elected or agreed upon by anybody right the other, in, the other interesting thing, too, is when the Allies sent to the Germans a, a note saying, we, it, these are going to be the conditions on which we're going to establish an armistice. The note said in English, it was sent from the Americans, and the note said aggression, that Germany recognizes their acts of aggression uh, and, and so on. And this was translated into German and given to uh the, the top generals and the top government officials and the translation changed aggression to attacks to angriffe and the germans being generally speaking rather literal minded it's like yeah well, we we did attack into belgium and france they didn't see any anything illegitimate about that they didn't see anything morally impugning about admitting to having attacked france so they just signed off on it and agreed to it right and that had huge implications later. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so... Oh, and, and, and the, the, the key... Sorry, the one key thing on that was the translator was Dr. Wilhelm Solf, who had been the German uh, governor of Samoa, and he had been... He was a, an Indiologist, and Raymer points this out and, and harps on it. He was also a Freemason. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And so, yeah, Raymer hates Do Wilhelm Solf and thinks that he was, uh, he was in on it. <laughs> right. Uh, not, not totally. Uh, and that he spoke, way, that his English was way too good to make such a mistake as to, to not convey the meaning of aggression and the, the you know, moral uh, implication of that word. Yeah. So, we can, uh, you know, we could do a whole thing on just how the uh, the unrest. There's a couple of great um, books on this. One that I got in college actually is Imperial Germany and the Great War, 1914 to 1918, by Roger Chickering, and it, you know, it also he complains about the the um, stab in the back that it was a myth and all this, but uh, the idea. You you said it there, Greg, and I just want to go over it again to reiterate. The, 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 the chain of events here is, first, the Kaiser abdicates, and they get a Republican. So there's total confusion. They get a Republican form of government. Then, two days later, the armistice is signed, and there are certain terms that the Germans are presented with to even agree to an armistice. Now, Ludendorff and the top, top brass in the German army want an armistice. They're in favor of an armistice, and they're putting out the feelers for it. But when they get the terms... Erzberger gets the terms for the armistice, he is taken aback by how harsh just the, again, to, to, ha to have a ceasefire. This is not the peace settlement, but just to agree to a ceasefire. Now, we can go over what the terms were in detail, but essentially, Germany had to give up. You said earlier when we were talking about it, they had to give up all their leverage 
in the subsequent peace negotiation in order to obtain a ceasefire. So they had to scrap their high, again, we can go through the details, but a couple of the things they had to scrap their high seas fleet. They had to turn over their entire fleet to the British. They had to withdraw all their troops to back within German borders. So people, listeners need to remember there were no foreign troops on German soil at the time that this armistice was signed. The Germans were on the, on the contrary, the Germans were still in France and in yeah, Belgium they'd, they'd and been in being pushed back, but they still yeah, held they were a lot of Belgian back. and French territory. Yes, exactly. So they were not, the allies were not in Germany at the time that the armistice was signed. They were well into allied territory. The Germans still were. So they were told that they have to withdraw. And there were several other um, things that they had to do. But one of the most outrageous and, and, and I really want to talk about this in a minute, but probably the most outrageous aspect of the armistice was that the blockade of Germany was to be continued until such time as the peace treaty is signed. And it went on for another, I think, eight months, the blockade. Yeah. And again, this is one of these key points that is just dismissed. It's just not talked about by historians, um, but in the history of the united states when the history of the united states is written by historians in future centuries they're going to i think characterize the united states's primary means of waging war in the 20th century as waging war on civilians this is how the united states wins its wars and, and it wasn't just on germany it was on austria as well yes so yeah. like the austrian empire is breaking up the authority is completely disintegrated by november 1918 and You've basically got armed bands setting up their own states in different parts of what would the former empire. Yes. And, and all the people are also being starved because they can't import food. Yes. Uh, so and there was like incredible violence. I mean, just to give one example that I, I read, I read about and you can't even this is not like basically not even mentioned in English history. There's not even an English Wikipedia article about this. Uh, March 4th, 1919 in the Sudetenland there were protests by the German speakers there who didn't want to be part of, uh, didn't want to join the new Czech, uh, Czechoslovakian Republic. And the Czechoslovakian, the government ordered a, a regiment to go try to control things and things got out of hand. Now it wasn't like pure, it wasn't like a pure Czech regiment. This was like kind of a fragment of the old Austrian army. So they still had Germans and Czechs like mixed together, but it was right. working for the, the Prague government, like right. just went and just shot 50 people and killed them and killed 200. I mean, a total massacre. Right. Um, right. And this is like, this is what was going on throughout, like, I mean, stuff like this, just total instability throughout Germany and Austria, Hungary um, for the entire period of from from the signing of the armistice November 11th to the signing of the Versailles Treaty and even beyond that, really, right. uh, which then the signing was in, in June, I think, of, of, eight, of uh, 1919. Right. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the idea of blockade, I mean, sanctions, we're doing sanctions right now on Russia. There are sanctions on Iran. There are always new sanctions being imposed on Iran. Sanctions are uh, one step down from full blockade. Blockade, you know, sanction is where you just, how does it work? Sanction is where you don't trade and you impose trading penalties. A blockade is where you actually use military forces to stop stuff from getting in. Mm -hmm. And if someone tries to get it in, you shoot at them. That's like a, a, an actual blockade. But the combination of blockade 
And, uh, you know, like I said, in not so much in World War One. In World War One, the policy was blockading the civilians as a way to break the civilian morale and to weaken the civilian workforce. Um, in World War II, of course, it's it's mass area bombing, weapons of mass destruction, and that continues with Vietnam and Korea and Iraq and everything up to the present day. But uh, but this incredibly cruel and inhumane way of fighting war is something that was, I think, central in Hitler's mind in all his plans. In all, you know, you and I did the episode about his broader geopolitical vision of like what he was trying to do strategically. Right. It was the memory of the blockade was a big part of that. Now, again, this is from Wikipedia. So this is, a, you know, the, the, the top mainstream source on the Internet. It says that about the blockade, effects on the war. The first English language accounts of the effects of the blockade were by humanitarians, diplomats, and medical professionals who were sympathetic to the suffering of the German people. The official German account, based on data about disease, growth of children, and mortality, harshly criticized the Allies by calling the blockade a crime against innocent people. The first account commissioned by the Allies was written by Professor A.C. Bell and Brigadier General Sir James E. Edmonds, hypothesized that the blockade led to revolutionary movements, but concluded that based on the evidence, quote, it is more than doubtful whether this is the proper explanation. Germans wanted to end the war because of the food shortage, but workers staged a revolution because of the long-term theory of socialism. <laughs> so... Yeah, the revolutionaries claimed that they're in their slogans, for example, that they were worker slaves to the monarchy. Edmonds, on the other hand, was supported by Colonel Irwin L. Hunt, who was in charge of civil affairs in the American occupied zone of the Rhineland and held that food shortages were a post armistice post armistice phenomenon caused solely by the disruptions of the German revolution, the communist revolution of 1918-19. So they're arguing about this. But first of all, right there is the stab in the back. So the revolutionaries, socialist revolutionaries and their slogans are engineering uh this 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 uh collapse from within but second of all we have this the the uh painful blockade imposed on the civilians of the german people now get this it says that um let me find it here here it is uh all scholars agree that the blockade made a, made a large contribution to the outcome of the war by 1915, Germany's imports had fallen by 55% from its pre-war levels, and the exports were 53% of what they had been in 1914. Apart from leading to shortages in vital raw materials such as coal and nonferous metals, the blockade also deprived Germany of supplies of fertilizer that were vital to agriculture. Now, again, I just want to s sketch this out, Greg. Why... Why can the Allies do this blockade against Germany? Why is it not affecting them, but they're able to do it to Germany? Or why are they able to do it to anybody? The reason has nothing to do with the liberals' ideals of freedom and democracy. The reason is because England, France, even the United States were more successful than the central powers in the decades and centuries prior to World War I in gobbling up large territories colonial powers and and seizing the world's resources again not through democracy voting women's rights freedom trans rights you know uh my body my choice but through military domination of other people's other lands other territories right the british so, empire was like what a, a fifth or a quarter of the world's surface right. at the time and and the reason i bring this up is just because you have to understand 
the rationale behind the Treaty of Versailles. The rationale behind it is Germany is bad. Germany is immoral. I mean, I have an essay that was that was here. a specific that was one that was the most egregious article of the four hundred some articles was I think Article two thirty five, which was Germany accepts guilt for the war. I have a speech that Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, who was a big warmonger against Germany. I know we have some people. I, I admire his conservation efforts, but with international stuff, Teddy Roosevelt was almost as bad as Wilson. He gave a speech September 6, 1918. Germany and its allies must be punished. And talking about the crimes of Germany. And uh, this idea of lawless, evil Germany must be punished for its aggression. Uh, you know, we and I were watching a documentary where it shows how there was like a cathedral window in New Zealand that shows like ignorance and brutality are the forces of the central powers and peace and democracy and like freedom and liberalism are the on the forces of the of the allied powers. Um this is the rationale behind the war propaganda, behind American entering World War I. It's the rationale for the peace settlement, for the punitive peace against Germany. It is the rationale then used against Germany a second time in World War II. And it is also the rationale that is used to establish the world order that we're living in today. That, you know, we were talking about how China is is start is challenging it a little bit or Russia's challenging it a little bit. And they say, well, you're you're threatening peace and democracy. It's critical to understand that the only reason why the Allies were able to impose these blockades, this blockade on Germany, or are able to do anything that they do, is because of brutality, aggression, violence, not respecting people's rights. You know, not respecting their territory, taking things that don't belong to you. Well, if there's anything we can accuse the Germans of, though, and the German leadership, it's of incredible naivete because the Germans accepted the Allied proposal to negotiate. And you would think, I, I, I get the impression from reading uh, Raymer that the German uh, officials thought that they were going to be dealt with in good faith yes i think it was a combination of i think it was a combination and that there wouldn't of, be a blockade and there I wouldn't think, be i think there was a combination of they were you know how they say like um hope for the best plan for the worst yeah yeah i think it was like this was a case of like plan for the best you know <laughs> hope for the best plan for the best yeah um but i think also the the, the problem is that by the time they sat down they had already lost their leverage. They had already lost their... And that's where the stab in the back comes into play, is that the Jews and socialists and communists and liberals and pacifists who were organizing these strikes, who were organizing this, this unrest in Germany, who were... I mean, we have an example of another government in Europe. Maybe you can think of another government in Europe that the occasion of World War I was used by communists to affect a major change of government, right? So, like, this had only happened the year before. I mean, think about that. That in Russia, the 300-year-old Romanov dynasty finally falls to Lenin and the communists because of World War I, because of the, the, the unsuccessful Russia waging a bad war and, and all the shortages and all the, uh, the, the things imposed. So if you're a communist in, in Germany, 
you feel like you've got the wind is in your sails, man. You've got momentum. You know, this is like Trump and Brexit. <laughs> it's like the, the it's, our thing is just sweeping the world. So if you're a, a if you're a communist or a Jew in Germany in 1917, and Russia goes down, the Romanovs go down, the Tsar goes down, and now you have the first communist state being set up by Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Let's not. I mean, let's not forget though that. The February Revolution of 1917, you know, True. pushed the czar out, and then it wasn't until you know October, November that that Lenin was reintroduced onto the scene. Good point. Good point. But that's, by, by that's the German they, by the German government. But that's why. But say. that's but that's why if you're if you're uh, a communist in Germany, like it's it's not you don't need to wait for a communist to take power in Germany. You just need to see the Kaiser go down. You just need to see the monarchy and the, and the old system go down. And it could be a bunch of liberals and pacifists and social Democrats or whatever, because you're hoping that you can have a revolution and still take power, which is what, you know, they tried to do in Bavaria. But my point is that you feel like you've got the wind in your sail. So you're going to make the biggest push possible to organize defeat. Uh, this is the line in Dr. Zhivago where uh, the guy joins the, the, the war effort. The communist joins the war effort in 1914. And he's like, he's like, my job, the party's job was he's like, they were all praying for victory. My job, the party's job was to organize defeat. <laughs> sort of like what we're doing with Biden. But, anyway. <laughs> but the thing is, there's no question that this is something that they were wanting to do, that they were trying to do, and that they did. Because like I say, if you're the German negotiators and you're sitting down, what leverage do you have? Now, let me just finish with this section on the blockade because this is very important. And Church, Winston Churchill himself, one of the most evil men in history, played a direct role in this. Um, apart from leading shortages in vital raw materials such as coal and non-first metals, okay, I read that, the blockade deprived Germany of supplies of fertilizer that was vital to agriculture. Again, they can affect this blockade because of their former aggression in prior decades and, and centuries, gobbling up like India, for instance, that they can afford to do this. That led to staples such as grain, potatoes, meat, and dairy products becoming so scarce by the end of 1916 that many people were obliged instead to consume ersatz products, including Kriegsbrot, war bread, and powdered milk. The food shortages caused looting and riots, not only in Germany, but also in Vienna and Budapest. The food shortages were so severe but by, that by the autumn of 1918, Austria-Hungary hijacked barges on the Danube full of Romanian wheat bound for Germany, which in turn threatened military retaliation. Also, during the winter of 1916-17, to 17, there was a failure of the potato crop, which resulted in the urban population having to subsist largely, largely on Swedish turnips. That period became known as the Steck Rübenwinter, or uh, turnip winter. The German government made strong attempts to counter the efforts of the blockade. The Hindenburg program of German economic mobilization was launched in 1916, designed to rate productivity, compulsory employment of all men between the ages of 17 to 60, a complicated rationing system initially introduced in January 1915, aimed to ensure a minimum of nutritional need was met with war kitchens providing mass cheap meals to impoverished civilians in larger cities. Again, this is all stuff the Nazis learned from and why their war was longer and more successful, even though it ultimately led to defeat, because they learned from so many of the mistakes made here. All of those schemes enjoyed only limited success, and the average daily diet of a thousand calories was insufficient to maintain a good standard of health, which resulted by 1914 or 1917 rather 
in widespread disorders caused by malnutrition, malnutrition such as scurvy, tuberculosis, and dysentery. And also remember that in 1918-19, while the Paris Peace Conference was going on and the Treaty of Versailles was the influenza epidemic. Right. That killed more people than the First World War. Like 20 million people died of the influenza epidemic. So imagine you're, you've been subsisting for like two years on 1,000 calories a day and you're suffering from scurvy. What is scurvy caused by? Lack of vitamin C, right? No vitamin C. So you, say, you get sick. Doctor says, go, go down there and take vitamin C. You know? Well, you're, you're actually suffering from scurvy. That's how, how, how short you are on vitamin C. And then you get hit with the worst mass epidemic of the 20th century, the influenza epidemic. I'm almost done here. The official German statistics estimated 763,000 civilian malnutrition and disease deaths were caused by the blockade of Germany. So about a million people, almost short of a million people, you know, three quarters of a million. That figure was disputed by a subsequent academic study, which put the death toll at 424,000. Well, only half a million. The German official statistics came from a German government report published in December 1918 that estimated the blockade to be responsible for the deaths of the 700-some thousand. And the report claimed that figure did not include deaths caused by the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. The figures for the last six months of 1918 were estimated. Uh, now... In 1928, a German academic study sponsored by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace provided a thorough analysis of the German civilian deaths during the war. The study estimated that 424,000 war-related deaths of civilians over the age of one in Germany, not including Alsace-Lorraine, and the authors attributed the civilian deaths over the pre-war level primarily to food and fuel shortages of 1917 to 1918. The study also estimated an additional 209,000 Spanish flu deaths in 1918. A study sponsored by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in 1940 estimated the German civilian death toll at over 600,000. Based on the, on the 1928 German study, it maintained a thorough inquiry has led to the conclusion that the number of civilian deaths traceable to the war was 424,000, to which must be added about 200,000 deaths caused by the influenza, influential, influenza epidemic. Now, this is during the war, after the armistice. Get this. In March 1919, Winston Churchill told the British House of Commons, quote, I'm not going to do the accent. We are holding all our means of coercion in full operation or in immediate readiness for use. We are enforcing the blockade with vigor. We have strong armies ready to advance at the shortest notice. Germany is very near starvation. The evidence I have received from the officers sent by the war office all over Germany shows, first of all, the great privations which the German people are suffering, and secondly, the great danger of a collapse of the entire structure of German social and national life under the pressure of hunger and malnutrition. Now is therefore the moment to settle. The blockade was maintained for eight months after the November 1918 armistice, According to the new Cambridge Modern History, food imports into Germany were controlled by the Allies after the armistice until Germany signed the Treaty of Versailles in June 1919. From January 1919 to March 1919, Germany refused to agree to the demand of the Allies to surrender its merchant ships. Its merchant ships. So they already agreed at the armistice to surrender their war navy. 
to Allied ports to transport food supplies. Germans considered the armistice a temporary cessation of the war and feared that if fighting broke out again, the ships would be confiscated outright. Anyway, it finally says, facing food riots at home, Germany finally agreed to surrender its fleet on the 14th of March, 1919. The Allies finally allowed Germany under their supervision to import 300,000 tons of grains and 770,000 tons of cured pork per month until August 1919. In April, the food from America arrived in Germany. The restrictions on food imports were finally lifted on the 12th of July, 1919, after after Germany had signed the Treaty of Versailles. See, Paul Vincent maintains that for the German people, they were the most devastating months of the blockade because, quote, in the weeks and months following the armistice, Germany's deplorable state further deteriorated. Sally Marx argues that the German accounts of a hunger blockade are a myth since Germany did not face the starvation level of Belgium and the regions of Poland and northern France it had occupied. But this is what they say. The reality is the most conservative estimates, a half a million German civilians died from this hunger blockade. This is women, children, the elderly, the most vulnerable people. And they kept this blockade going until uh, until the, the, the peace treaty was signed. And it says not included in the German government's December 1918 figure of 600, 763,000 deaths were civilian death deaths related to the famine in 1919. A recent academic study maintains that no statistical data exist for the death toll of the period immediately after the November 1918 armistice. Dr. Max Rubner, in an April 1919 article, claimed that 100,000 German civilians had died from the continuation of the blockade after the armistice. And the British Labour Party anti-war activist Robert uh, Samil issued a statement in June 1919 condemning continuation of the blockade and claiming that 100,000 German civilians had died. And the last thing on this is the impact on childhood was assessed by Mary Cox using newly discovered data based on heights and weights of nearly 600,000 German school children measured between 1914 and 1924. The data indicate the children suffered severe malnutrition. Class was a major factor as the working class children suffered the most but were the quickest to recover after the war. Recovery to normality was made possible by massive food aid organized the United States and other former enemies. So they're starving German women and children and old people and civilians. And this is maintained between the armistice and the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. So imagine this, Greg. You have a wife and kids. And I'm going to say, okay, we're, we both are pointing guns at each other. <laughs> and I say, all right, okay. Uh, I'm going to, you lay down your gun. All right, give me your gun. All right, you gave me your gun. Okay. Now, I still got my gun at you, and I'm going to keep starving your wife and kids, and we're going to hammer out terms here, you know? Right, right. Now, they're your, your child is dying of malnutrition in front of your eyes, and I've got the gun held on you, and you just gave me your gun. Um, but we're going to hammer out some terms here, and, you know, you take your time, but when you're good and ready, you sign, and you tell me when you agree to this, you know peace in our time uh what or not peace in our time uh, uh democracy democ fighting uh, yeah the, making, making the world, the world safe, safe for democracy. democracy yeah the other aspect of the signing of the treaty is that so they the allies required that germany evacuate france and belgium and that they hand over their fleet it's sort of uh, funny to note that the german navy sunk their fleet while in British captivity at Scapa Flow. Do you know, you know about that? 
the I'm sorry, the who? German fleet, the German Navy sunk the fleet in British captivity. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, to keep them from what was it to keep them from? Yeah, no, they surrendered the fleet and the British transported it to their their port and the Germans just sunk all the like one night just sank everything. Right, right, right. Because uh, right. the British were going to uh, very generously were going to induct 70% of the German fleet into their own fleet and then give the other allies the other 30% of the fleet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Germany fucked them on that. But then uh, Germany had to evacuate France and Belgium in one month, which is a logistical nightmare to get uh, how many two or three million men out of northern france and belgium on shitty roads in the middle of november yeah. uh, and, and and also had to dump off their artillery and 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 make it happen like clockwork right they succeeded in, in in evacuating in a month but they also had to evacuate eastern europe so they had to evacuate uh latvia lithuania estonia poland um all the parts that they had that germany had taken from russia after the brest brest litovsk treaty of uh, I think it was January 1918. Right. And that's interesting because for one thing, that's where they're getting that. That was like their one way to get grain was to get it from Eastern Europe. Right. Uh, or they're a, a good source of it that they had. So they, they had to give that up and that, and that didn't, it's not like Russia was able to take, take care of that. The, the, uh, those just basically became independent countries with, with the exception of Ukraine, which was taken by the communists, although it was briefly independent during this period. But it's strange if you're the allies, why would you, if you're looking at the world situation in 19, early 1919, wouldn't you want Germany to occupy those parts of Eastern Europe, like the Baltic and the Ukraine in order to either hand it over to your troops or to, to actually prosecute the war against the Reds, which the Western allies were keen on doing and did do throughout 1919 and 1920? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's an interesting point. Like, I, were they thinking about it in those terms? I mean, were they look because like we think about it like okay, well, Britain and France had unfinished business with Germany, but look at the bigger picture. Like Germany still is controlling Central and Eastern Europe. Right, right, yeah. Well, I'll I'll also say that the other the other uh, big thing that disproves the stab in the back that that that's like just a myth. Uh, you know, you and I were watching uh, part of that documentary earlier, and they point out that Germany could not. There were people like uh, I think Ferdinand uh, Foch, who was the Allied High Commander, the French Marshal. Uh, he wanted to press on to to Berlin. I mean, he wanted to press on all the way and take over Germany. And he and, and you know, it's funny because his reasoning wasn't that wrong i mean you can fault the french at versailles and i did when i was a kid reading about this i thought well clemenceau was clearly the bad guy because he was a he was a veteran he's of the most the, vindictive yeah he was a veteran of the franco-prussian war um and and he still had this like revenge motive that we've got to avenge uh, you know on prussia did you know they they did a plebiscite in uh in alsace and lorraine in 1871 did they and what was the out like 90 percent in alsace voted to join germany and 75 percent voted to join <laughs> right, germany right 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 well I mean, maybe they maybe they massaged the results i don't know maybe it was like an american election yeah but but i mean you know we have a uh, historic rivalry here between but France. there was no plebiscite conducted after 1918 they didn't even right, pretend they didn't right, even right, put up with the right, pretense right right that's interesting i didn't know that um yeah there's no um you know, there's a there's a rivalry here between France and and Prussia and then later Germany that's been going on for like 
you know, 150 years at this point, 200 years. And uh, Clemenceau has that sort of narrow, you know, kind of myopic, like we've got to make, we got to, I got to just secure French, I got to, French security is the number one thing here. So, and, and Foch said a number of things. He said that Germany will, the Germans won't admit that they were beaten, <laughs> you know, if we don't like go in and take their country away from mm-hmm. them. And also he said that this isn't a peace. This is a 20 year, uh, uh, ceasefire uh, and and that he was off by uh, apparently 65 days yeah. <laughs> so so you know cold cold military realist but he wasn't wrong but uh but the the reason why uh the allies couldn't just go into germany in 1918 in like august uh, you know september of 1918 was because the winter was coming and it would have taken them they wouldn't have been able to attack Germany proper until the spring of 1919. And the documentary we're watching, the, the narrator even makes the comment that, uh, you know, by that time, Germany could have renewed its strength to some extent. I mean, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been able to you know, take Paris or something. But well, the Allies also had to worry about an actual communist revolution in Germany or communist revolutions in Eastern Europe or because- communist revolutions in Western Europe. And this is the big point that. Uh, I, I want to make also is that, you know, in 1916, there were uh, big revolts in the French army that, right. that, that the Germans didn't know about. They had a big intelligence failure. They didn't know the extent of it. And, they, and they, you know, there's a lot of military historians who think that if the Germans had really gone all in in 1916 against the French, because the French used to be very, this is why Pétain got such a reputation, why he was so well liked, um, partly because he actually conserved his men's lives prior to, and Foch is one of them who, uh, in the, um, I was just reading about him. It says that in the immediate aftermath of World War One, there's comparing Foch to Julius Caesar and Napoleon. But now they're like looking back and being like, he wasted a lot of men's lives in the early months of World War. Well, I. if you're not advancing, you're just not trying hard enough. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. didn't, the, didn't the French have in, uh, informally the, a doctrine like the cult of the bayonet? I, that was basically the idea was uh, if given infinite motivation, uh, one French soldier with his bayonet can like destroy anything. I don't know, but I, I know <laughs> that this, this attitude of the French army was uh, infamously dramatized by Stanley Kubrick in his very subversive film Paths of Glory. But it does kind of accurately show uh, George McCready plays a French officer who sends this is his a sweet men, battle scene, though. Yeah, he sends his men on an impossible mission. And, and when they're just like hunkered down, like they're all going to die, you know, from and they won't advance any further because they're pinned down by German fire. He, he's he orders his artillery to fire on their on their own men. And then when they won't do it. He says, the men are mutinying, you know, because they're just like hunkered down, like we're going to die if we stick our heads up. So that's mutiny. And then then he has them all arrested. And he says, if they won't face German bullets, they'll face French ones, you know, like that. But um, this attitude of the French army, you know, people were sick of the war all over. And, uh, you know, there were communist movements. I mean, European governments were poised to fall like they didn't actually fall like dominoes but they were poised to and there were major there was a major communist revolution takeover of russia which you know we're still dealing with the consequences of that um but also in hungary and then in bavaria but there were others so so yeah they they they, 
it was not in their interest to keep the war going. They wanted the war to be over. They needed the war to be over. But in the same way, you have mutually destroyed, uh, mutually assured destruction by nuclear bombs. In 1918, the whole world was facing mutual assured destruction by internal communist yeah. subversion. Yeah, it, no, it's true. And the idea is that, uh, the, but the idea of the stab in the back, and we can we can drop it after this, unless you want to say something else about it. But uh, I just want to one last time reiterate what you said at the start of the podcast, which is. Germany could have negotiated a much, much, much better peace settlement had they been able to keep their leverage up to the moment of the armistice and then going into the peace treaty. They could have negotiated an honorable peace. They could have negotiated a peace where they keep some more of what they have. And, you know, people... It's funny the way the logic works when you hear people write about this. They say, oh, well, they made the fatal mistake of, of allowing the Germans to believe that they weren't beaten. Well, I mean, what's the kind of right makes, might makes right sort of logic of that? You know, it's like, well, therefore, we can never allow someone to not think that they're beaten. Therefore, we just need to, like, destroy everyone who opposes us in the future to make sure that they never... Don't think that they're, I mean, isn't the idea like to end the war? Isn't the idea to get some kind of peace with justice and to stop all the needless death and suffering, especially of civilians? I mean, if that's the goal here and if the allied war aims are largely intact, you know, you've contained Prussian militarism or whatever it is that you're worried about. Uh, isn't it in your interest to make sure that it's a peace that is going to last that's not going to lead to further problems down the line so yeah the, the, the idea of the stab in the back is it was in the internal stuff communists and jews in germany fomented things to the point where they were on the verge of collapse and that took away the germans leverage going into the peace negotiations so the terms that germany received after the armistice at the armistice and after the armistice were much worse than they otherwise would have been and the final proof of that is hitler because hitler rounded up all the communists and jews and put them in camps and guess what happened during world war ii they fought for two extra years past what they did in world war one and there never was a collapse of the home front there was never any kind of insurrection and, and the German civilians were under much greater pressure. Now, you could say, well, yeah, well, Hitler, all he did was manage to get Germany actually completely destroyed, wiped off the map. That's beside the point. It, that's that's a separate idea. Because then it's like, well, why even fight a war? Right. The, the logic of that is, well, then don't fight a war in the first place. Just submit. Yeah, just to, submit. Submit to every time an army comes to your borders and wants to take something that you have. Just lay down your arms and say, please, take whatever we have. We can't risk a war. You know? like, <laughs> we can't have that. I mean, if you follow that logic. So the fact that Hitler was able to prevent this from happening shows that it was a real thing. The stab in the back was a real thing. And the shitty terms that Germany got imposed on it, when they still were in French territory, they didn't have to, they didn't have to deal with that. But yeah, we can, unless you wanted to say something else about that, I wanted to emphasize let's, let's, the blockade because it's, it's so crucial to understanding everything here. Uh, the immorality of the allies, Hitler's war aims in World War II, you know, why he was so focused on, like, for instance, taking Ukraine rather than taking Moscow. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the whole idea of national socialism, of Gemeinut skate for Eigenuts, you know, in this Chickering book about Imperial Germany and the Great War, you can read about how 
the conservative class uh, structure, the reactionary class structure of Germany in World War One, allowed the rich and the privileged and the well-connected to buy up large stores of food and stockpile them at the beginning of the war that then later led to food shortages. So, so much of Gemeinnutz, Gate for Eigenutz and National Socialism was just simply like, this would allow us, if we share the burdens, if we have this socialistic idea of society where we all share the burdens, where the rich don't get to be that rich, the poor don't get to be that poor, as long as everyone's working for the country, everyone gets his due, and everyone shares in the sacrifices, so much of that mindset is not just like idealism, like wouldn't this be fair? It's like this is what allows a nation to survive in difficult times. Right. And if you have this enormous class stratification and social injustice, that is going to lead to internal collapse and your country is going to be left prostrate where other countries can come and just take its freedom away. So the blockade is very important and uh, it's it also shows the inherent unfairness of the Treaty of Versailles. <laughs> so the Treaty of Versailles was supposed to be predicated on president woodrow wilson's 14 points which was his program for uh sort of a new world order of of peace and and democracy and one of the main points or i guess the underlying point of all of it was the idea of self-determination for every nation of europe or every nation of the world right but the treaty of versailles basically did the opposite of that yes i mean both in Europe with, with the way that the borders were drawn, and it, it wasn't the borders were drawn, independent new powers just arose in the chaos, like uh, the Czech, Czechoslovaks, the Poles, uh, the, the Baltic states, uh, the Serbs, and basically just grabbed what they could and, and form, sort of formed their own countries, and then the treaty confirmed uh, the states that had formed uh, in the chaos after the uh, end of the war. But... The other aspect too, to how and and you know some of those borders were drawn in in such a way or ended up being basically good and basically according to uh, to where the peoples were and so you did have nation states but there are tons of exceptions right that didn't make any sense like Poland just went and grabbed Vilnius from Lithuania and uh, Czechoslovakia took the Sudetenland from uh, in the Sudetenland would have preferred to have voted to stay with Austria or go to Germany. Lots of examples like that. Right. But then on the bigger picture on the world stage, you had this, the imposition of the mandate system where Britain and France, mostly, a little bit of Italy and, and Japan and, and uh, as well, but mostly Britain and France, just divided up the map of Africa and the Middle East and said, okay, this, is, this country is now under our protection. This country is under our protection, which... Uh, greatly expanded the British Empire, allowed them to finally connect Cairo to the Cape. Uh, that is, Cairo, get a, line, a string of countries going straight down Africa all the way to the south, to the very bottom of Africa, which they had just succeeded in, in seizing from the Boers uh, 20 years before. Right. So, well, I want to comment on the 14 points real quick. Okay. Uh, it's interesting if you actually read the, because in prepping here, I, I read the text again of the 14 points and it's funny. The 14 points doesn't actually mention self-determination. It's one of these technicalities that, uh, you can kind of, um, Wilson talked about self-determination, autonomous self-determination. 
And the points are five, six, seven, and eight. Wilson focuses on adjusting colonial disputes and the importance of allowing autonomous development and self-determination, which drew significant attention from anti-colonial nationalist leaders and movements who saw Wilson's swift adoption of the term self-determination as an opportunity to begin to gain independence from colonial rule. The funny thing is when you actually read the 14 points, <laughs> it just applies to the to the central powers. So the point five, a free, open-minded, and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims based upon a strict observance on the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the population's concern must have equal weight with the equitable government whose title is to be determined. Okay, so that one could be applied to the British and the French because he was an anti, he was against traditional like imperialism. But then the eva- point six is the evacuation of all Russian territory and a settlement of all questions affecting Russia that will secure the best and freest cooperation of the other nations of the world and obtaining for her an unhampered and unembarrassed opportunity for the independent determination of her own political development and national policy. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, point seven. Yeah, I don't, does that mean anything? Does that, I can't, does that mean like Russia gets to take back all of the, uh, it, it's satellite states yeah, that's or, not or, quite that, clear. That it, or that it doesn't, you know, question what happened with Ukraine at this time? Well, Ukraine, so the German army occupied Ukraine in Brest Litovsk or most of it. And then it, you know, withdrew, uh, after the end of the war. And then Ukraine just descended into anarchy for a while because the reds couldn't control it and the whites sort of controlled it. There was a lot of white armies. Um, what's the name? Denikin, I think was the, the white commander who was based in like the Crimea and was getting allied help and, and at different times controlled a lot of Ukraine. Yeah. But, uh, there was also a big anarchist movement led by Nestor Makhno to, and who, who set up a, a anarchist state with an anarchist army of several divisions that ran Ukraine or ran big parts of Ukraine for a few months and then was finally crushed. And then he ran away to Paris and lived in a bohemian exile for 20 years. Oh, wow. No, it was, I mean, Ukraine was a clown show in this, this whole period. Wow. And then eventually that it was brought into the Soviet Union as a independent or as a, you know, dependent Soviet Republic. Well, see, that's, the reason why which was strange because that is, i don't think that that division had never existed under the czars like kiev was just part of russia right and then the soviet union they said okay well we're going to have belarusia U- the ukraine and 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 great russia are all going to be united we're right. going to be the three pieces forming the the core of uh you know the new ussr i mean this is interesting because it's like this basic idea of what America is pushing for in World War One, the same line of propaganda is being used right now by NATO with Ukraine versus Russia. And it's, it's the same hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is the only word for it that you can think about. Where you, the, the, the other guy has to respect the independent development of all the little itty bitty countries around the world and mutually mutual respect and no wars of aggression but you can impose your shit anywhere you want in the world <laughs> you know like literally the entire globe yeah it's like, well, it's like, well, well america what if what if you know 
sixty percent of white people want to break away and form our own country. Yeah. On North America, are you going to yeah. give us self self determination? Like fuck yeah. you. But point seven, I, I'll just summarize. And point seven was Belgium must be evacuated and restored uh, without any attempt to limit the sovereignty which she enjoys. Uh, point eight all french territory should be freed and the invading portions restored the wrong done to france by prussia in 1871 in the matter of alsace lorraine needs to be righted to make peace point nine a readjustment of the frontiers of italy should be effected along clearly recognizable lines of nationality point 10 the people of which Aust- was a violation of italy's terms for entering the war because italy agreed to enter the war with britain on the it's like getting specific territories. There were specific conditions by which Italy entered the war. So if Wilson's going to come and be like, well, it has to be only for uh, ethnic, for we can adjust it according to where Italians are. It's like, well, that so, wasn't. So, so that helps to explain, like, why would why would Italy, which is on the side of the allies in World War One and is present at the Paris Peace Conference, why would Italy turn fascist and then find itself allied with Germany in 19... 19- 39 40 41 this helps to explain it i mean it does explain it in terms of that italy felt that they got screwed at the end of world war one like they were on the winning side and they got screwed and part of that has to do with the fact that the italians switched sides in the middle well, of the there was war. no switch there's no switching sides. well i guess they didn't switch sides no, they, they, they weren't they they were they were never on the side of the yeah there was that, no you're right the, yeah there was a the austrians and the i mean the austrians and the germans had a sort of agreement with the italians but it wasn't a you have to join in a war and and also the war had been arguably started by austria right right so they weren't obliged to join on the side of that's right oh and and the other thing too like they had i mean i was reading about this like the italians and the austrians were arguing at the beginning of the war and the italians were saying like okay we'll we'll join in on your side but you got to give us trieste and i don't know uh, south tyrol and austria was like fuck you and germany was saying to austria well hold hold on a second there we'll compensate you like just get the italian just get this other country in on our side because that'll you know one you're not opening a whole nother front on your side right in the alps uh that you're gonna have to pull troops out of serbia and off out of galicia and then throw them all in into italy for uh and two it's like even if we just keep Italy neutral, like that's better than bring them into the war, right? Right. And the Italian fronts uh, in World War One, I, I want to talk about that as like a whole thing, but it's it's underestimated how much that was bad for the act for the uh, central powers. Right. You, know, you can't open up a whole uh, several hundred mile front, even if if it doesn't really move throughout the war. Right. Uh, you can't just open that up and have to send hundreds of thousands of men there. Uh, without that hurting the rest of your war effort. And it was really brutal. I mean, from everything I've read about it, it's like uh, a part of World War One that, again, is something we don't really talk about or hear about as much in the popular culture, but was really tough, was really a rough uh, front. Yeah. Because it was up in the mountains and the snow, and it's like trench warfare in in the highest yeah, mountain tre- you peaks. Can't, you can't dig trenches because it's all just yes. rocks. So you like build build walls out of rocks, and like bullets strike the walls, and like the rocks shatter and fly everywhere. And yeah, just uh, but yeah, the point ten. I, I do want to go through this real quick because this is central. Like, I mean, the three big things here you could say are the Treaty of Versailles proper, which is one of several treaties signed at the Paris Peace Conference. But before that, the armistice, and before that, the 14 points. 
because all three are there's like a cascade effect the one affects the next one which affects the next one the armistice is downstream from the 14 points and the 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 treaty of versailles is downstream from the armistice point 10 was the people get this language greg the people of austria hungary whose place among the nations we wish to see safeguarded and assured. It's interesting he didn't say the peoples of Austria-Hungary, but the Mm -hmm. people of Austria-Hungary should be accorded the freest opportunity to autonomous development. So that's self-determination. Right. Point 11. Romania, Serbia, and Montenegro should be evacuated. Occupied territories restored. Serbia accorded free and secure access to the sea. Relations of the several Balkan states to one another determined by friendly counsel along historically established lines of allegiance and nationality. Again, self-determination is here. It's just he doesn't spell it out like this is the principle that we're not now going to do for everybody. Right. International guarantees of the political and economic independence and territorial integrity of the several Balkan states should be entered into. <clears throat> Point 12. The Turkish portion of the present Ottoman Empire... Because this is a whole other thing, is is how much this has affected the Middle East right. and continues to affect the Middle East. And the Middle East, you could almost say the Middle East is more, would you say the Middle East is more directly dealing with the consequences of the outcome of World War One than the rest of the world right now? I mean, probably yes, as much. Yes. Yeah, uh, in some ways, yeah. Certainly Iraq, Syria, like that region. I was like reading the, 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 the Fertile Crescent well, and, and Israel. Uh, yeah. I was in the Balfour Declaration. I was yeah. reading that uh, Alfred Rosenberg said that a big part of the uh, that Zionism played a role in the Jews in Germany advocating for revolution and uprising and for, you know, uh, work shortages and work stoppages and all that because it helped to the Zionists knew that they had this agreement that once this is over and we can get that the other side to fold. Well, the Zionists the, were also working to bring America into the war. Right. And they, they, uh, and the end to get the uh, Balfour declaration from England. Right. So that's an interesting, like, Hey England, you, you promise us Palestine and we'll get our cousins in America to get Wilson to get into the war was basically the deal. And that's a very interesting point that probably I'm sure, our guys in past decades have written books about this. But, yeah, there's but this, this is one, something. One great book is the Eighth Crusade by uh, anonymous. No, it was written. It was published anonymously, but it was by a Waters Taylor, Lieutenant Colonel Waters Taylor. This book's basically basically unknown. I only happened to come across a copy of it printed in Germany in like 1939. Right. Um, it was written by a British officer who had served in the in Palestine and he explains exactly how the Balfour declaration went down and, and how uh, the, you know, the middle East was divided up and the Zionist and Jewish efforts behind all of that. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting point because it's like, in a way you can, you can specifically blame Zionism in part for, you know, the, the, the unjust settlement of world war one, the escalation of world war one, you know, I mean, the Zionists, it's funny how uh, Churchill wrote that article uh, that Rockwell quoted in his Brown University speech about Zionism. Uh, the Zionists are like the good Jews mm-hmm. and the and the Bolsheviks are the satanic Jews. You know? <laughs> um, but but how Churchill draws this false distinction. Uh, but you can see how from the Jews perspective, the end of World War One, whether you're a communist or a Zionist. You know, which supposedly are 
completely different things. You know, a Zionist is supposed to be like a, a, a an aggressive like Jewish nationalist, an aggressive like religious, racial, reactionary Jewish nationalist intent on securing Jewish living space in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And the Jewish communist is, you know, this idealist who wants to bring about this world worker's state and who's an atheist who rejects ethnic divisions. But you can see how Jews in the on both sides stand to gain from this from the you know from revolution in germany for instance like specifically yeah like 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 revolution in germany in the kaiser's germany in 1918 benefits both bolshevik jews and zionist jews because they both get something out of it yeah you know yeah something i never thought of before but the last thing here was it says that uh so so they're demanding that the Ottoman, the Turkish portion of present Ottoman Empire should be assured a secure sovereignty, but the other nationalities which are now under Ottoman rule should be assured an undoubted security of life, an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. Well, that really happened, didn't it, with Iraq and Syria and all the rest of them. Pure, pure, uh, absolutely well, was, unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. I well, mean, it was, you know, they bullshit. Were, the Allies wanted to d- split up uh, Anatolia as well. And you know, take which contrary to the, to the uh, fourteen points that you just read, he says that the Turkish part of Turkey should be Turkish. Right. Well, that's the Italians and the French and the British weren't too keen on this, especially the Italians and the French who wanted to take pieces of oh, and the Greeks. Take, <laughs> <laughs> <Of course>. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! We're the only ones that actually have like a historical a claim. Well, you know, it, Italians conquered uh, Anatolia too at a certain time. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If we're playing Been redraw, while, redraw yeah. world borders. Yeah, but the Turks, you know, the Turks beat them to the punch there and you know organize themselves and you know were able to to keep the allies out off their home turf which again thanks to you know, ataturk i mean i mean yes you're you're at a boy ataturk i mean you're dealing with people the, the the big principle the underlying principle here greg you know we you and i did the machiavelli thing about realism the underlying principle that i see that emerges from the 20th century is might makes right like now i'm not i don't believe that i think that there are i i, I think that the, that there is such a thing as right and justice that is separate from just what force dictates i don't think that you know two knights the medieval thing of like the truth will be known when the two knights battle it out and the true knight will win over the false knight no the true knight's a better swordsman and he kills the other knight and he, you know the, the, that's it's or the, the the one knight kills the other knight and that's just it's not because he was more just or more good or more honest um but the the settlement of world war one is wrapped up under this wrapping paper called democracy and self-determination and freedom and liberalism. And you unwrap the paper and what you get is just brutal might makes right. And the settlement for World War II is the same only with millions and millions more uh, yeah. casualties so, and civilian dead. And and actually to, to add to the why Versailles is more... Uh, the basis of the current world order than some of the a lot of the you know uh, post World War II agreements is Eastern Europe specifically because if you yeah. look at the map of Eastern Europe of you know, nineteen you know twenty five or today it's very similar but the map of Eastern Europe in 1950, 1960, 1970 was Russia controls everything up to the Elbe right 
that's a good point. The odor. Yeah. Yeah. So or the elbe. Yeah. You know, this idea of I mean, this right here, this point twelve, I mean the idea of that the other nationalities under Ottoman rule should be assured undoubted security of life and have I mean, you can just imagine you're a fucking Arab and you're reading this in like, you know, nineteen twenty or like nineteen thirty or nineteen forty, and you're like, Yeah, right. You know, like you assholes, you lying sacks of shit. Um point 13 yeah, as, as the british like gas bomb your village somewhere yeah, in Iraq. Yeah, yeah because you're like you know what i think maybe uh it's not in our interest to join the world war ii on the side of the british you know maybe we should maybe we should do something maybe we should sell some oil to germany you know and they yeah. like yeah they gas bomb your village so point uh <clears throat> 13 is an independent polish state should be erected which should include the territories inhabited which should include the territories inhabited by indisputably polish populations which should be assured of free and secure access to the sea well wait a minute you just contradicted yourself right because like yeah well what i don't know of any coastal poles yeah i mean the, the you know the great polish navy you know the great <laughs> polish the polish sailors the polish seamen you know from from the past whose political and economic independence and territorial integrity should be guaranteed by international covenant well right right there i like how point 13 neatly like this is the world war ii clause you yeah. know this will be like we'll have a clause specifically to trigger the second world war right in here um but again this just shows like if the idea of well, they're setting up they're just setting up a series of buffer states to potentially use against russia or germany yes yeah and, and then, they did uh, use these states against russia in 1919 and 1920 yeah and then the last point and this is this is also something that um is important as you say for our present world order um the last the four Point 14 is a general association of nations must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to great and small states alike. <clears throat> now, that's a fine idea. Uh, and you can see how, you know, we were talking about Metternich in 1815 and how this yeah. is this is really a totally different mindset from that. Like that, that is the old conservative reactionary empire dynasties multi-ethnic dynasties held together by christian absolute Con concert monarchies. of europe and uh, what, what was metternich's phrase something about agreement between sovereigns it was it yeah. was agreement between sovereigns not between peoples right 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 and and this shows that i mean it's almost exactly 100 years 1815 yeah to 1918 19 well this is 1918 uh, that he that he gave this speech so it's almost literally a, a hundred years later you can see to what extent liberalism has just grown into its own and is now a major force in the world compared to what liberalism was uh in 1815 this is a very liberal idea and it's kind of a nationalist idea, the idea of like countries having political independence and all this. But what we see is this idea not at all put into practice, not at all, not even slightly. And uh, yeah, so this, these 14 points were basically used as war propaganda. And you and I were watching a clip out of Century of the Self where the chief, uh, one of the chief top Jews in the Committee on Public Information Edward Bernays, who basically founded the public relations industry and the created consumerism. Yeah, he, he and, and of course, the nephew of Sigmund Freud is like, 
Yes, we had the slogan. Uh, democracy was saving the world for democracy. And a dumb guy of all fell for it. That was, that was a big slogan we, we used back then. <laughs> he's just like laughing over it. He's like, this is what gave me the idea to, you know, use advertising slogans to make dumb people buy shit they don't need. Like, because. Or- and of course, propaganda. Well, I was good at propaganda, but we that was a bad word. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so we came says- up with public relief. Yeah, he literally says that. This creepy Jew is saying this like 90 years later. And his his book, (laughs) Propaganda, he actually like, I think it's the preface of that book, but they talk about how the word propaganda and it's one of these things like the big lie that I always have to like explain for people because it's it's one of these it's kind of like mind-boggling when you think about it. The word propaganda was stigmatized by propaganda. So propaganda made the word propaganda into a dirty word. So as an act of propaganda, Americans stopped using the word propaganda and instead used public relations or public information, uh, you know, to put the spin on their propaganda because their propaganda is the thing that turned the German word for it, which was just Propaganda, right. propaganda, licht und verma, you know, Goebbels. They just use the word. But anyway, so they're coming up with this idea, though, for a, a League of Nations, this liberal idea of this League of Nations, which is, survives in the United Nations. I mean, you could almost say that the United Nations is to the League of Nations as the U.S. Constitution was to the Articles of Confederation. It's like the first one is an imperfect attempt to try it, and the second one is a more durable version of it. Mm-hmm. Again, only more durable because because actually it was established through like mass extermination of whole cities and peoples as opposed to the first one that didn't exterminate them. And again, that's where I go back to this idea, Greg, that if you just read the 20th century straight, it's like atrocity and brutality plus slogans about peace and democracy equals world power like that's how you do it you know you 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 take the most elevated slogans you're never fighting for yourself you're never fighting for your own interests you're fighting for that's why you see that's why putin is doing this thing like well there's neo-nazis in ukraine there's a nazi regime in ukraine because he's he's echoing the same well, thing but that, mostly like, he isn't even doing that mostly he's using the these are our interests, and this is what's fair and what's right. Well, he's somewhat doing that. At first, at the start of the he's war, he's doing he it was, way too much. He, if he wants to win, he's got to break out the, he's the real break cynical. Out the, yeah, yeah, we'll see. We're, we're going to bring freedom to Ukraine, and then we're going to bring it to Berlin and London and Paris. And this comes natural to the Jews. You know, it's interesting that uh, the where, where the term Molotov cocktail comes from. Uh, we had talked about that, where where the the Finns fighting the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Molotov in his uh, the Soviet foreign minister claimed in his radio broadcast that no, the Soviets, we're not dropping bombs on the Finnish people. We're dropping bread on the starving Finnish workers who are demanding an end to the reactionary government that controls them. And we, as the liberators of, of the saviors of humanity and the workers and uh, we're our planes are dropping bread on the starving workers of of uh of of finland so the Finns came up with well if that's molotov's bread well here's a molotov cocktail you know that's where the term comes from uh that kind of outrageous like uh, cries out in pain as he strikes you level tear lie is the basis of the all the rhetoric of the liberal world order that was established in 1919 and then solidified, you could say, locked down 
1945 and in which Russia and China right now are butting up against it. But yes, this is an incredibly important um, treaty. Uh, it's it, it, This is the most important history of the 20th century to get straight. Uh, and and the, the other thing was just that the 14 points before we leave that, um, it was used as propaganda. I mean, it was used as propaganda to undermine the central powers. And the idea of self-determination, though, inspired a lot of people. And a lot of people were and a lot of people didn't like this. I mean, if the Wilson made this speech without consulting his allies. So, you know, from the American point of view, it's kind of a smart, smart thing to do. Was it, was Wilson evil or was he just naive and was he a naive do-gooder? I remember listening to a podcast a long time ago. I think it was Sam Dixon went on Red Ice and he studied this period a lot. And I, I think I remember him saying like that he that Wilson was like a true believer, but he was mocking him and just like saying that he was just... Yeah, I mean, Wilson strikes me as a true believer who he he's one of these people who knows a lot, but doesn't understand anything yeah well i i have heard that that wilson was just dumb and <laughs> he just wasn't very in, i mean i, I that's what i've he, heard like in in versailles like when he was talking to the other leaders they just were they found him cloying and annoying yeah yeah and full of himself like he he really felt like he knows better than all the and it's this kind of american arrogance that persists to this day that like oh old europe or these people like don't understand you know we're we're about freedom and liberty you know and and this is you know your your petty little concerns don't make any sense you know because this is what we're doing i don't know i think wilson i haven't studied him enough but um it says that (laughs) this is funny in the treaty of versailles it says that uh President Wilson contracted Spanish flu at the beginning of the Paris Peace Conference and became severely ill with high fevers and bouts of delirium, giving way to French uh, Prime Minister George Clemenceau to advance demands that were substantially different from Wilson's 14 points. It's like, thanks, Wilson. You know, he's <laughs> delirious with fever when it comes time to push for this stuff. But uh, it, it really, um, I do know that, uh, you know, we had read about this, how... Um, Wilson uh, later kind of changed his idea, you know, and was more favorable to a harsh, a harsh uh, peace against Germany, like after now, after the armistice is signed. So I don't know. I, I haven't studied him enough to say whether he would certainly in effect, you know, that's what we have to look at. In effect, Wilson either was a liar and a deceiver and was promising things in bad faith or he was irresponsible as a leader and should have, if, if he meant what he said during that speech, he should have followed up with more vigorous demands for this. I mean, World War II could have been averted. World War II could have been averted and Hitler would have had a wonderful painting career, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it, it's really true that uh, this, this, uh, this could have been averted. And And, you know, you could say, like I said, you could say that, Hitler, okay, well, so he didn't, he put food rationing right at the beginning. He made sure the Germans didn't go hungry. They had the hunger plan and all that, which that's what the hunger plan was about. It wasn't about starving Slavs as a thing of like, oh, this way we'll get rid of a bunch of Slavs and we can repopulate them with German colonies. No, it was like literally, we got to keep our people from starving to death like they did during the First World War, you know, um, as priority number one. 
because uh, you can't win a war if your whole civilian population is literally starving to death. But everything from putting the communists and Jews in concentration camps where they can't cause trouble, um, in in having a policy that you're not going to, uh, you know, you're going to strike first with where necessary. Um, all the things that, that that define Nazism as a movement, both domestically and in foreign policy, were lessons that Hitler learned from this. And you could say that if, well, okay, so if the only lesson is Germany should have kept fighting, and then they would have ended up like they did in 1945 in like 1919. The reality is, if they had kept fighting here, I think Hitler would say, then there wouldn't have been a need for a Second World War. Because if they could have maintained the line or held out long enough to negotiate a just peace, then there wouldn't have been this subsequent Second World War. Uh, or if they just totally collapsed and the Allies had invaded them, you could have had a sort of insurgency situation develop. Right, right. Um, well, Clausewitz would say, no, they would have to fight to the end first, and then <laughs> then you could have that. But, uh, but yeah, so this was, uh, you know, the text of the 14 points, this is another thing, um, had been widely distributed in Germany as propaganda prior to the end of the war and was well known by the Germans. The differences between this document and the final Treaty of Versailles fueled great anger in Germany. And German outrage over reparations in the war guilt clause is viewed as a likely contributing factor to the rise of national socialism. Gee, you think? Um, so, anyway, um, let's, uh, let's look at the treaty itself, unless you wanted to say some more no. about the 14 points. No. Um, so we've talked about the armistice and how brutal it was. Again, um, here's the actual terms that were written by Foch. Cessation of hostilities on the Western Front, withdrawal of German forces from west of the Rhine, allied occupation of the Rhineland, and bridgeheads further east. Again, this is just before we start negotiating. This is the, these are the terms. <clears throat> Preservation of infrastructure, surrender of aircraft, warships, and military material, release of allied prisoners of war and interned civilians, eventual reparations, no release of German prisoners, no relaxation of the naval blockade. The armistice was extended three times while negotiations continued on a peace treaty. And fighting continued, you talk about the waste, fighting continued up to 11 a.m. of the 11th of November 1918, with 2,738 men dying on the last day of the war. So to give people a sense of, uh, of the scale of World War One. Well, I mean, you know, it takes a while to make all those phone calls and say, yeah. hey, hey, like, hey, like nine, like hey nine, Colonel, we're going to we're not going to do that artillery barrage yeah, tomorrow. Like, like a 9-11 happens, basically, <laughs> like the equivalent of I mean, think about what we think about 9-11. 3000 people die, right? 3000 guys die one day while they're like in the morning, we agree we're going to end hostilities. So by the afternoon, we'll put it into, you know, we'll get it all set. And we'll make it official by afternoon. In that amount of time, like a 9-11 occurs, that many dead dead white men. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, to the treaty itself, when they hammer it out, uh, you know, the, the, the thing is, it's like Wilson is pushing. The way it was taught to me, Greg, was, and the way I learned it in high school is, Wilson was like the most fair. Clemenceau was the most vindictive. Right. With Lloyd George 
who I know I'm going to screw up and call him George Floyd. <laughs> like, I've almost done that. George, George Floyd. <laughs> yes. I, I actually kept, at the start of the George Floyd thing, I kept calling him Lord, Lloyd George by accident. <laughs> but now I know George Floyd's name so much. I've heard it so many times that I'm going to be, yeah, British Prime Minister George Floyd. <laughs> who, who, by the way, was not, uh, not uh, speaking of uh, evil world leaders, he was not. He was not. And he was very um, friendly towards Hitler later. Later on and uh, complimentary towards Hitler but um, the Treaty of Versailles uh, well he was Welsh he was Welsh that's true um, the uh, I want to get to a couple of quotes here um, this is from this is a quote from uh, RHS Stolfi's book Hitler Beyond Evil and Tyranny and it's from the, from the chapter, Hitler as a product of his times. Okay, so this isn't a pro-Hitler book, but this is an interesting um, book that was written um, by a U.S. Uh, colonel who was a historian. Uh, and this was published in 2011. <clears throat> and it's one of the most interesting books on Hitler because it refutes some of the major myths of the major like Hitler biographers, Joachim Fest and Toland and that piece of shit, uh, uh, Kershaw, Ian Kershaw. Yeah. He refutes their BS without like making a full-throated defense of Hitler. But he's just like the main biographies get a lot of stuff wrong. Um, so he sa- he writes about Hitler as the product of his times. And he says that the... German Armistice Commission, headed by Catholic Center Party leader Matthias Erzberger, agreed to the Allied terms for an armistice and negotiations during November 8th through the 11th, 1918. The fighting in World War I ended on November 11th, and the two sides to, that, to the great conflict began preparations for the peace conference that would put together the various treaties that would finalize the war's outcome. The peace conference would be held in Paris... And the most important negotiations would be between Germany and the Allies at Versailles, approximately 22 kilometers southeast of the center of the capital. So Versailles is a suburb of Paris, or it was at that time. <clears throat> Against a complex background of national elections, political unrest, and armed revolutions in the major states in Europe, preparations moved surprisingly fast for the conference, which opened formally on January 18, 1919. Discussion centered on the provisions of a treaty between Germany and the Allies and were dominated by an Allied Supreme Council, the so-called Big Ten. And after March 25, 1918, the Big Four, Woodrow Wilson, David Lloyd George, George, George Clemenceau, and Vittorio Orlando. In a bizarre historical scene divorced from the reality of any previous treaty, these four men, each supported by a large staff, created a draft treaty without the presence of a single German representative. Since an international treaty is an agreement created through negotiation among two or more political entities, it is difficult to claim in the case of Versailles that a treaty, as has been understood by that time in history, came into existence. The draft that the Big Four created in the name of the 27 Allied and Associated Powers between March 27th and May 7th, 1919, was in fact built out of, a fierce, out of fiercely argued negotiations among the four principal states representing one party to the treaty, to the quote treaty. As concerns negotiations between the Allies and the German government, none took place. 
The German delegation to the Paris Peace Conference was first addressed by the president of the Peace Conference, Clemenceau, on the afternoon of May 7th. Clemenceau spoke ex cathedra, the words, quote, You have asked for peace. We are prepared to offer you peace, dot, dot, dot. There will be no verbal discussions, and observations must be submitted in writing. So you can't say anything. We're going to give you these terms. <clears throat> the Allies submitted the draft treaty to the German delegation the next day, May 8th, 1919. And the German delegation submitted vigorous protesting observations in the nature of counterproposals that resulted in no changes of any substance to the draft. On June 16, 1919, the Allies responded to the earlier German counterproposals in a document that amounted to an ultimatum, ending as it did with the words, quote, as such, the treaty in its present form must be accepted or rejected, unquote. A bare threat that if the treaty were rejected as it stood, its terms would be enforced unilaterally. Now, again, Germany has already given up everything that they could use to fight a war. <clears throat> and they've hand, even handed back the prisoners of war from the, from the, uh, to the Allies. So they got all their troops back. The covering letter to the Allied reply was the most important document in the exchange of notes during the Paris Peace Conference and comprised a savage, unhistorical indictment of both the German imperial government and the German people. Quote, Never in history had such a terrible indictment been passed on a European nation as a whole, unquote. In 1919 and the following years, millions of Germans would learn of the indictment through the schools and the press. The Germans became aware of the branding of an entire people as part of an international criminal conspiracy. <clears throat> but how could the words in a mere covering letter, notwithstanding its official sanction by Allied governments, translate into eventual mass support for an extreme nationalist like Hitler? Witness the following excerpts from the letter, quote, In general, the conduct of Germany is almost unexampled in human history. The terrible re responsibility which lies at her doors can be seen in the fact that no fewer than 7 million dead lay buried in Europe while more than 20 million others carried upon them the evidence of wounds and sufferings because Germany saw fit to gratify her lust for tyranny by resort to war. The rulers of Germany commenced the submarine campaign with its puritanical, so piratanical, like as in pirate, puritanical. Piratical, I think. Or piratical, thank you. Piratical challenge to international law and its destruction of great numbers of innocent passengers and sailors in mid-ocean, far from succor, at the mercy of the winds and the waves, and the yet more ruthless submarine crews. <clears throat> and then Stolfi writes, The above-exaggerated, almost hysterical allegations in the Allied letter of June 16, 1919, and similar ones in the document, set the spirit of the times. The Allied note, from which the above allegations were extracted, represents the enormity of the situation about as succinctly and accurately as it can be expressed in terms of the binding accusations of the victors of World War I. The treaty forced on the Germans shortly after, on June 28th, reiterated the spirit and established the times. Hitler, the artist, the architect, the would-be Wagnerian-style Germanic hero, the already hardened, remorseless war hero, and the aspiring nemesis of German Marxism and its alter ego European Jewry would flourish as no other in these times. Based. Yeah, nice. But yeah, it's, uh, 
you know, and this is the, 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 the conclusion he makes is the allied powers that wrote the treaty and dictated it to the Germans could not escape domination by their own wartime propaganda. In other words, they were drinking their own Kool-Aid, you know, when, when the terms were written here. Now, we've talked about how there were, um, you know, financial reasons why they wanted to impose this war guilt on the Germans in terms of the debt that France couldn't pay back to the British and the Americans and that the British couldn't forgive the debt and the Americans wouldn't forgive the debt. Yeah. So there's a strong, you know, compensatory financial incentive to do this war guilt clause. But the, but the a clause strong, is a strong Jewish uh, impulse. Yeah. But the clause itself is even more Jewish in terms of the propaganda, because as we know, the propaganda of World War One, at least in the United States, was totally Edward Bernays uh, and uh, the, some of the other uh, important and influential Jews on the Committee on Public Information. So um, this starts a whole century of American, uh, you know, th this is the negotiation is we're good and you're evil and evil doesn't deserve anything. Evil deserves to die. You know, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. <laughs> like yeah. that's literally the terms of our negotiation because we're good and you're evil. Uh, and we're still living with that today. I mean, we're dealing with that right now in um, with Russia, with Putin. I mean, why we right now, you know, somebody could be like stumble upon this MP3 and like the nuclear ashes like a year from now. You know? <laughs> and they'll be like, wow, that's funny. A couple of guys were talking about this thing that escalated to, to nuclear holocaust because we're dealing with it right now. The idea of uh, of that they cannot the american conservative published that thing we were talking about on ftn where they cannot make reasonable demands of vladimir putin because he's evil and the devil and he has no business doing anything in ukraine and we're the good guys so we have the right to demand like unlimited <laughs> domination of everything you know out of goodness and humanity um so yeah what do you make of that comment by uh stolfi here that assessment that that this is just this is just this is not a treaty this isn't a oh, treaty. yeah because you yeah you, you're there aren't two sides here <laughs> there there's, aren't two sides how is it, that a treaty you're you're negotiate there's a negotiation going on between france italy britain and america yeah mostly between britain and america uh and i guess a little bit france but and then they're just presenting all right we've, we we have our plan accept the plan or reject the plan and if you reject it it's war yes I don't know why they didn't just reject it. I mean, I get why they didn't well, again, reject it, but there's like hundreds of thousands of children I mean, I, starving to death. Well, you right. Know, like, I, like, no, I, I get that. But what I'm saying is you, you wonder why they didn't say, fuck it. I mean, like your situation is actually only going to get worse, even if you do sign. It. And th that's what happened. Like, even though they agreed to these, these humiliating terms, their situation continued to get worse because they had, because they didn't fight. Right. Right. Uh, you like know, the occupation of the Rhineland. I mean, there were things that happened that were happening throughout the early 20s that just weren't even part of the treaty. Yeah. Uh, France was like, oh, well, we're not getting enough. Uh, we don't have enough uh, iron for, we don't have enough coal to smelt the iron that Germany has been sending us in lieu of gold. So let's just occupy the Rhineland. Right. I mean, just like, Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because Hitler talks about, uh, how do you say it? The Bre Brest. Litovsk. Litovsk. Uh, 
you know, you had mentioned it as the treaty that was signed between the Germans and the Russians right. prior to um, or, or when when Russia was knocked out of the war by the uh, <clears throat> revolution against the Tsar in, what was it, 1917. Yeah. And Hitler makes the point in, in, uh, in Mein Kampf that that was a frequent objection that Germans would make to him when he would be thundering against the Treaty of Versailles. They would say, what about Brest-Litovsk? See, that shows that Germans were willing to impose a harsh peace on the Russians when they had the chance. It was completely ridiculous and unjust. And so, you know, it's not that Germany doesn't have this. Germany was just as guilty of, of imposing like a harsh, mm -hmm. unfair peace on its enemies. Now we're just getting what we gave to the Russians. Well, it's funny because Stolfi. Well, it's, it's funny because what happened in 1918 is the Germans retained all those Eastern territories. So like the Germans basically just took all of the parts of Russia or, you know, the former Russian empire that were inhabited by non-Russians or by, in the case of Ukraine, by little Russians or Ruthenians. Right. And, but Russia's, the Reds situation, Russia's situation was bad in 1918 because they were having a civil war, but it was really bad in 1919 because that's when the civil war really kicked off. Right. When the ally, the Western allies were able to supply white armies in Ukraine out of Crimea and in the Baltic. So you, the, the, the Moscow was getting attacked from four direct, three directions, getting attacked from, uh, from the Baltic up from, from the black sea and from Siberia with, uh, Admiral Kolchak. Right. Well, yeah. So this, this uh, this book by Stolfi, it's really good, Greg. Again, I, I you don't have this one, do you? No. I, I recommend, actually, anyone who um, is serious about the history of this period, pick up this book by R.H.S. Stolfi, Hitler Beyond Evil and Tyranny. I got it at Barnes & Noble, which is incredible that it slipped through the cracks. Um, it, it's viewed as like a Hitler apologist book. But again, mm, he, nice. he affirms the Holocaust. He... he, he as a military historian, he says that Hitler's decision to not attack Moscow cost him the war. Um, he, you know, he's very critical of Hitler in a lot of places. But his main thing is that he's trying to bring just rationality to the view of Hitler. He's saying that the 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 accepted caricature, caricature characterization of Hitler is a cartoon it's it's just completely ridiculous you know and that, that you don't have to be a nazi or a national socialist to see that and he's like am i the only one that is like reading the major hitler biographies and there's like major 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 things one after another that's just completely goofy and silly um so he like i said he deals with this <clears throat> the treaty of versailles here and it's a long section i i can't read it all i'd like to just read the whole thing but he talks about uh, Brest Litovsk and it's funny he says the allied powers that wrote the treaty and dictated it to the Germans could not escape domination by their own wartime propaganda the treaty has been attacked with devastating argument from many directions but with little effect on reassessment of European history in the 20th century quite astonishingly serious and reputable historians continue as apologists for a treaty that concentrates within its articles the times that drove Europe towards World War II the following sentences are typical of the continuing divorcement from reality about the qualities of the treaty and the dubious attempts at defense. And I think he's quoting here. I can check who he's quoting, but I think he's quoting uh, one of the um, one of the the, the Hitler uh, historians. 
Oh, okay. This is from uh, a story in Lutz on uh, German, Germany, French unity. Quote, from a general point, world point of view, it is difficult to see how the peacemakers laboring under the tensions and pulls of so numerous and varied a concatenation of national interests and demands could have done much better than they did. Certainly by comparison with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which the Germans imposed on Bolshevik Russia, it was a model of fairness and generosity. <laughs> Now, he says, one could reply that the treaty might have been negotiated with a German delegation. Leon Trotsky, in contrast, not an insignificant Bolshevik, was present at Brest right. to negotiate. And the contention of unfairness in the Brest-Litovsk Treaty is based largely on the German creation of, a cl of client buffer states in the East. But the 2004 contemporaneous scene in Europe undermines the contention of unfairness because the states claimed by the conventional wisdom to have been torn so unjustly from Russia under Brest-Litovsk, namely Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, all chose independence when presented with the opportunity to escape from the latter-day Bolshevik Russia of the early 1990s. In other words, when the Germans set up buffer states against Russia, it's evil. <laughs> when, the, when, the, when the allies set up buffer states against Russia or when the United or, States or when the United Britain, States continues to to prop up these buffer states yes <laughs> then it's just the model of peace and security so then he says that in the treaty of June 29 1919 there would be a pattern of excessive severity combined with unhistorical accusations impugning the national uh, honor of the Germans and he you know again I can't go through all this because it's pages and pages but he talks about uh the unhistorical accusations that the uh that the major allies faced with the challenges of keeping their populations fighting in an unprecedented total war embraced propaganda characterized by unrealistic exaggeration hate and difficult to fulfill promises in the event of victory the Allies broadcast the dubious claim that the Germans wanted, planned, and started World War I, conducting it with inhuman savagery. Greg, I can't emphasize enough how important propaganda is to the 20th century. You know, people, I think, our, even our guys, sometimes think of propaganda as something that just is like, an important additive you know like you have your war you have your election you have your revolution you have your economic crisis and propaganda is just the spin you put on it mm. to the people uh we have to remember that the 20th century saw the creation of mass means of communication and mass means of persuasion through technology so radio film you know newsreels um and and just the mass distribution of newspapers and well, also the breakdown of communities because of more people moving to the city. So yes. if, if you're you don't have such a small tight community anymore, it's easier for you to just be won over by propaganda. Whereas your community might say, "Well, is this really in our interest? We have to talk. We have to really think about this." Right. Or if it's if it's new, you know, like today, uh, the U.S. government can't put out a newsreel and people all watch it and be like, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we talk about like the Mad Men era of advertising in the 1950s when people would watch an ad, a television ad, and they think, oh, man, 
if I wear that or do that or say that, I'll be the sexy one and everyone will like me. That's really good information. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Exactly. Um, you know, today people are very cynical, but imagine if people in the 50s were susceptible to like lucky strike smoking ads. Imagine how much more susceptible people would have been to mass means of communication in like 1916 or 17. You know, even though it was silent film. Uh, you know, I have a couple of books on this that I, you know, we're not going to get it in, into it today, but there's a number of books on uh, the history of the propaganda efforts in World War One, And it really has, it's set, not only did it set the tone and the tenor of American rule for the next hundred years, and not only did it set the tone of American consumerism as the dominant ideology of the of really of the 20th century, the ideology that won at the end of history in 1989 and 1990. But it actually affected the peace terms and the settlements of these wars, because when you're hopped up on when you've hopped up yourself and everyone else on this claim that, that these are just the most inhuman savages ever known to man and everything they do is unjust and everything you do is just good. When it comes time to negotiate, like, well, what should we give them? What should we leave them? The How should we work this out? for blood and all the greedy assholes who lent all who, who financed the war uh, are going to want double money back yes yes exactly and it's and, and it's are going to feel justified in demanding it and can whip up the people to you know get the statement statesmen to impose that yes it's it says that this was a he says stolfi says that this was uh a result of um Buffeted by French and British propaganda tinged insistence on war German war guilt, President Wilson, who had espoused a peace of justice and fairness, collapsed in the face of French and British pressures. But his own government was big in, in pushing this propaganda. I mean, I have books about World War I written in the published in the United States during the war and right after the war. So I have these old books. I have a number of them, uh, some here and some in a different location. And you wouldn't believe the way they talk about the Germans. I mean, it's just like the Hun smashing churches, raping nuns, skewering babies on, on their bayonets. It's, it's that, you know, destroy that mad, the mad brute, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, so how do you, how do you have a treaty in this atmosphere of irrational hate, which is in fact just a war strategy? I mean, it's, it's like an, a component to winning the war is to just completely de dehumanize, you know, otherize your opponent. Uh, anyway, um, I'll, I'll go through cause he talks about a couple of the specific trees, but did you want to jump in here with something? Uh, well, DeGrell has a, has a good chapter here on British demagoguery. Okay. So he says in, in relation to the, the treaty of Versailles and the starting of world war one and who benefited from world war one, he says, Strangely enough, the ones who, even before the arrival of delegates to the peace conference in Paris, were the spokesmen for a policy of vengeance were not the French, but the British establishment. More than any other country, Britain had taken great care to ensure that the war would prove profitable to its trade and imperialism. The British establishment would not allow anything to stand in the way of uh, its greed for gain. And then he, he talks about uh, Britain's policy of divide and rule in Europe and how big the British Empire was. It was a quarter of the world. Uh, the empire, by the end of the war, controlled 
35 and a half million square miles of the Earth's surface, 10 times more than it did in the 18th century. And then he says, the British establishment had seen the Germans as a threat, real or imagined, and had immediately set their agencies in motion to deal with the problem uh, by fomenting wars. Britain had always regarded Europe as a patchwork of alien entities to be manipulated for the greater glory and wealth of the British establishment, and had never considered itself part of Europe. Uh, England is only bound to Europe, but is not a part of it, declared Churchill. British support for one country doing its bidding uh, was never long, long standing. As soon as it had served its purpose, it was abruptly discarded. Friendship and uh, loyalty were never consideration, etc., etc. On Armistice Day, Britain had once more reached its goal. It had eliminated a, its competitor by foul play. And then he goes on and also gives examples about how Britain had been doing this to Spain and to France and in the previous centuries and how this is just a consistent pattern with them. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. That's uh, And Leon de Grel, I mean, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I well, mean, his, his country was created as a, a means of Britain controlling, helping to control France. Yeah. Uh, Belgium. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's funny because <laughs> this is good. We, we'll, we'll bounce back and forth some quotes here. Sophie says this. <clears throat> how could any treaty, even one that would emerge from the end of World War I, be ill-conceived enough to lead in only 20 years to an even greater conflict? At the very beginning of the treaty, parts two and three give concern for, fair, for fairness and functionality. Those parts represent territories taken from Germany and given to various states on its frontiers. The Allies would compensate the innocent and unoffending state of Belgium, which, although neutral at the war's beginning, had thoughtfully fortified its boundary against Germany. Belgium would take the German frontier districts of Eupen, Malmedy, and Morisnet as compensation for war damages. The Allies would have been better served morally and functionally to have taken almost any other action, <laughs> monetary compensation or delivery of goods and services, for example. The morality of transferring German territory inhabited by approximately 50,000 Germans and virtually no, quote, Belgians, unquote, as compensation for damages, was typical of the confused thinking about punishing the former enemy. Belgium, since its modern inception in 1831, has been plagued by friction between its 60% Flemish-speaking and 40% Wallonian-speaking populations comprising two differing cultural communities, and it scarcely needed a third community of Germans. The intensity of the friction and its persistence is illustrated by the Belgian's Parliament's constitutional amendments of 1977, which created three separate cultural communities, namely Flemish, Wallonian, and German. So, again, this confused thinking, that's a very, like, nice way of putting it, you know? It, it's just, it's... And, and this this is where Wilson's ignorance really comes into play as a as a very dangerous force because he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing okay right. like wilson doesn't know what he's powerful he has power he's being greeted as a hero and he does not know what the fuck he's well, doing he, he'd been a princeton professor and a very popular uh, popular professor i sound, <laughs> yeah. that that should tell you something right there right, right, because he right. focused on giving these really uh, mellifluous lectures right and he just he, he's the sort of person who is really good at showing how smart they are but who doesn't know dick yes he's like basically yeah. the entire state department right 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 yeah. yeah so so one of the cool things here with stolfi with the exception is, of people we know but yeah <laughs> yes right i i like how uh stolfi here he 
he doesn't let anything go. And you'll appreciate this. He's talking about basically in one of the most bitter struggles, Clemenceau is trying to annex German territory to the West Bank of the Rhine River in the name of French security. U.S. and British governments could not agree to so dangerous and dysfunctional an expansion of French territory, but nevertheless agreed to vast changes that were both economically crippling and humiliating to Germany. So, in terms of economically crippling, Germany would lose 75% of its iron ore production and 40% of its coal. For an area in which the economics of the larger industrialized states pivoted around steel production, much iron, a little carbon, some alloying metals, and a large heat source, Germany would face huge adjustments in continuing to produce steel. It could be argued, of course, that the iron ore taken from Germany was largely from Lorraine, which had been recently taken from France along with neighboring Alsace after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. In the end, the Germans lost World War I and should have been prepared to suffer the consequences of the loss, particularly under the circumstances noted above. Unfortunately, instead of just taking the territory, the Allies, in what would become a syndrome in the treaty, could not resist including the humiliating moral judgment that the land was being ceded, quote, to redress the wrong done by Germany in 1870, unquote. So that, I just read that in Wilson's 14 Points. These words have provoked little controversy among several generations of historians who accept as obvious a view that Germany had committed a wrong against France in 1870, apparently though the immoderate territorial avarice of having torn away uh, Alsace and Lorraine. The entrenched wisdom would have its readers believe that the Franco-Prussian War was largely the heady scheme of the Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck to unify finally under Prussia the 38 states of Germany through means of a national, i.e. all-German, fight against the traditional predator of France. Indeed, broadly stated, this was Bismarck's ambition. The entrenched wisdom rarely presents with conviction the other half of the picture, in which the Emperor Napoleon III and the imperial party surrounding him required an imperial policy of territorial aggrandizement and sought to put the upstart Prussian kingdom in its proper place after its prestigious victory over Austria in 1866. The same wisdom fails to inform us that France only recently, in historical terms, had seized these ethnically and culturally German areas. Though essentially German, these states were unable to maintain their independence against a state so large and powerful as France. In a telling commentary on the concept of a wrong done to France, It could be noted that the French census of 1931 for the departments of Moselle, Haute-Rhin, and Basse-Rhin, Alsace-Lorraine, showed 10% of the population speaking French, but with 90% speaking German, a statistic that does not support the case for allied blandishment of Germany. Yeah, right, that that statistic would support Raymer's contention that that in the uh, plebiscite of 1871, that 90% voted for going to Germany. Yeah, there it is. 90% German, 10% French. The Allies treated the Germans heavy-handedly in the Rhineland. The Germans lost sovereignty over the territory. Okay, so, but just right there, let's stop. The fact that Wilson says that in the 14 points about Alsace-Lorraine, you know, the redress the wrong done in 1870-71, and then they add that. So it's saying, okay, fine, you know, Germany has to pay, they lost the war, and we got to take shit from them. But then attacking them morally, like justifying, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. This is the same thing. The theme that I'm I'm getting at here, might makes right is the operating principle. That's well, the operating principle. Well, and, well, and the way it's been enforced on Germany 
since eight, 1918 has been just brainwashing, re-education of right. everybody. But how is that relevant to us is that now whites in America and everywhere else, we're all being re-educated to hate ourselves right. and to see ourselves as the or to be the villains of all history yeah and and i mean it, it informs it forms it in, in a million other ways it's it's like you know all our entire foreign policy that is destroying this country that has brought us to the brink of nuclear war i mean at least the closest we've come since probably the cuban missile crisis i mean we're we're, we're moving in that direction yeah, right uh is possibly being, closer possibly closer is is happening because of this might makes right you know silk glove and the iron fist the iron fist is might makes right and the silk glove is Oh, morally, this is good versus evil. This is badness being punished by goodness. That's what this is. So anyway, again, I'm going to skip ahead. <clears throat> he talks about what was done in the Rhineland, how the Germans lost sovereignty. Zarland, uh, Zar Basin, placed under the Governing Council of International Commission. Its coal mines forced uh, were ceded to France as compensation for the German destruction of French coal mines. The Allies forced the Germans to endure this economically dysfunctional situation for 15 years until a plebiscite would be held to determine if, quote, the inhabitants, unquote, i.e. the Germans living there would prefer union with France, Germany, or a continuation of international controls. <clears throat> the Allies occupied the Rhineland in three zones, as well as three 30-mile-deep bridgeheads centered on Cologne, Koblenz, and Mainz with armed forces from France, Britain, the United States, and Belgium to ensure treaty enforcement. Uh, this eastern zone was to be occupied by foreign troops for 15 years, and if these conditions were not enough to help German nationalist parties gain adherence, the Allies proceeded to demilitarize Germany, not only on the left bank of the Rhine, but also within an area... 30 by demilitarize, they mean strip away all the weapons from the Germans and send in Allied troops. Yes, including... Niggers. <laughs> right, including including Knox. Yes, yes, in the yeah. same way that yeah, the demilitarized zone in North Korea is, you know. Yeah, yeah. Huge numbers. Lots of, of landmines and but, but artillery col pieces. Colonial blacks, uh, the Rhineland bastards. You know, this is where that comes from. Because colonial black troops are now being put into Germany. Senegalese. Yes. Thanks, France. Yeah, thank you, France. Uh, the Allies, uh, yeah, so not only on the left bank of the Rhine, but also within an area 30 miles deeper into Germany along its northern bank. The Allies demilitarized the Rhineland by forbidding the presence of German troops, fortifications, mobilization installations, and maneuver areas. The Allied military occupation of Rhineland and the three bridgeheads east of the Rhine combined with the demilitarization of the area would be laden with consequence for Hitler, the Germans, the French, and even the Americans. Thwarted by the governments of Britain and the United States in attempting annexation to the West Bank of the Rhine and achieving control over its own destiny, France was forced to accept the promise of mutual defense treaty with Britain and the United States. With the government of the United States reneged on its promise and irresponsibly and immorally defecting, defected from the creation of such a treaty, and Britain, citing U.S. defection, refused a bilateral security treaty with France, the French government was left perched in the Rhineland to enforce the Versailles Treaty largely alone. In a similar astounding vein, although the Wilson administration had signed the Versailles Treaty, the U.S. Senate rejected it terminally on March 19, 1920. And finally, although Wilson had championed a League of Nations, the United States did not join that organization during the entire yeah, no, interwar period. I, I remember in school learning that the U.S. didn't join the League of Nations, but it's actually fuller. They, did, yes. they didn't sign the treaty at all. Yes. yes. The U.S. had a separate treaty with Germany and, and Austria and Hungary 
two or three years later. Yes. Yeah. So, or not even treaty. It was like an agreement. So he's saying deserted by the United States of diminished foreign policy interest to Britain and incapable of allying with Soviet Russia, France faced Germany alone. Under these circumstances, France was forced to clutch at the Versailles Treaty as its main source of security. So you see the kind of shitty geopolitical calculations that are in place here. I mean, it's like, it's really bad. It's really stupid. It's not just like, okay, well, this is unfair to the poor Germans. It's like, this is just dumb. You know, like, and like he says, what kind of a treaty can you describe as successful if, like, war explodes 20 years later? I mean, well, how would you, I mean, if you were dictator of America in 1918, which is probably the only person in a powerful enough position to prevent or to do something about this, how do you, how do you set up the world? Assume you're not Wilson and you're not a moron. How do you set up the world to live peacefully and did not have a world war two i mean i i you know you you have to either go it's a shame because it's like the hard-nosed conclusion of history is that marshall foch was foch was right mm-hmm. that that just unilaterally like invading germany and unilaterally imposing a brutal peace you know at the at the at the point of a sword rather than half-assing it and doing it this way would would have led to greater security over the long haul um but you know we'll never know i mean we can talk i mean number one i think you just round up all the all the war profiteers and and cancel all the debt well that's a funny thing how could how could italy which was if you, so, if you can't if you if if America canceled all the debt, it, it, there wouldn't have been I don't think great economic repercussions at home. I mean this if well you Ameri- get, America they was didn't get their money you know I mean so so I I, I just want to say like Mussolini think of think of you know the the claim we always hear about why we need to topple autocracies around the world is because autocracies start wars and democracies don't. Now we know that that's bullshit. There have been studies to show that that's total bullshit. Um, but here's a question: How comes Germany and Italy? who historically have had a very tough relationship. I mean, I mean, if you go back to the, we were talking about the Middle Ages, and if you look at the problems between the German emperors and the Italian city-states, the Pope and German princes, Germany and Italy have had a lot of issues, as neighbors tend to do over the years, over the, de- over the centuries. And in World War I, they were enemies. So how is it that in the interwar period, they became like BFFs. How did that happen? I would say partly it happened because you had rational men, statesmen who were who were themselves ex-soldiers, you know, and you can't say that about Roosevelt. And I mean, you can say it a little bit about Churchill, but he wasn't a soldier in the First World War. He was at the front for a little while, but it wasn't like yeah. He I, wasn't. I, uh, doesn't. I mean, he had a very cushy job, you know. He, he and and Roosevelt even more so during World War One. And Stalin was like holding up banks or something. I mean, he was like a criminal, <laughs> you know. Like, um, you know, Mussolini and Hitler are able to sit down and work this out between these two like military aggressive bad guy states. How were they able to do that? Well, maybe partially because they punished the war profiteers and they and they cut out the they cut out the fat, they cut out the middlemen that drive nations to war, and they're able to sit man to man and work out 
negotiations. And even Hitler and Mussolini had some tensions. You know, they had no, quite sure. a few. But, like, they were able to work it out. Um, but these these allied governments, these Western European governments, drunk on this ideology of liberal goodness and humanity, and just on that basis demanding everything. Uh, you know, it's just it's it's like it's a recipe for disaster, and and it's something that um, you know. I think if Fosh got his way. One thing I can say about Clemenceau and Foch is that they were more honest. You know, they were they were not they were not trying to punish Germany for being bad. They were trying to punish Germany for opposing France. You know, yeah. it's like you fuck with France now. You know, like it's on you, buddy. You know, you you messed around and found out. Like that's the mindset there. It's it's a it's a it's a harsh mindset. Again, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here. I, you know, obviously, I would have liked to see Germany like totally. You know, John Maynard Keynes wrote what did he write? The Carthaginian Peace. Yeah. I mean, he was predict he predicted everything that would happen. You know, and it is not from the point of view of like humanitarian concerns over German children or also worrying about like a potential extremist nationalist taking power and launching a new world war he's just like this is going to bankrupt germany and everyone else this is going to fuck up the world economy it's going to sink europe and a lot of people said that i mean i greg i got a uh, a thing here this is from a uh, opposing viewpoint series on world war one and it's an article that appeared in the new republic <laughs> In uh, May 24th, 1919, and the magazine's official editorial stance had been one of strong approval of Wilson's decision to take the United States into this war to end all wars. And the New Republic endorsed the president's declared intentions of securing a peace agreement that would reshape global politics and prevent future conflict. However, in the following viewpoint, the editors expressed bitter disappointment over the Treaty of Versailles. They argue that the treaty imposes burdensome commitments and reparations that Germany cannot realistically be expected to fulfill, raises the specter of future class conflict, and scuttles any hope of a new world order that transcends nationalistic competition and strife. So, <clears throat> it's a it's a editorial by the New Republic written in may of 1919 and the new republic haven't been saber rattling for wilson to join the war and they basically say that that this is too harsh the harsh terms as it, it they appear to be indefensible uh it's 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 a terrible thing um the hostile verdicts attract to themselves the limelight of public attention uh, it says that the, the viewpoint, the state of mind about which the treaty is obtaining expression in some of the Western journals, they say that uh, they're, they're not looking at this honestly. They're not looking at what this is going to do honestly. So, in other words, there were many, many, many people in the West who even were big, you know, warmongers pushed for war that, uh, that just rejected the idea of the Treaty of Versailles as being completely unfair and, and, and not able to be. So it's like, the, it's not like they didn't know. It's not like people weren't saying this, right. you know, other than the Germans. Um, anyway, the, the thing of the, 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 uh, cause I, I want to just hit the other points quickly of, of the, that the treaty did. The thing about the Rhineland and the occupation of the Rhineland, um, and France, 
Going back to Stolfi, France forced to clutch at the Versailles Treaty as its main source of security. It says the presence of French ground troops in the Rhineland and the bridgeheads to the east until 1930 would give the French government leverage to force German adherence to the treaty. Where would Hitler begin to fit into this picture of Europe dominated by the times put in place by the Paris Peace Conference. Hitler's first nationally significant political action, the Munich Beer Hall push of early November 1923, would be forced on him by the disastrous conditions created by German resistance throughout 1923 to the French military seizure of the Ruhr. The rough equivalent of the British industrial Midlands and the U.S. industrial space between Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Gary, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So, does he mean in terms of output? In terms of output, yeah. In terms of its importance to the country. <clears throat> so, then they talk. He talks about the the main ter- territorial losses inflicted on Germany were inflicted in the east. Uh, the thirteenth point, an independent Poland to include territories indisputably Polish with free and secure access to the sea, came into the play with the resulting imposition of disastrous territorial conditions that would become the immediate causes belli for World War II. <clears throat> At the most general level of consideration, the Polish government census of nineteen thirty one reflects the state that Wilson and the Allies brought into existence as largely Polish, but whose makeup was disastrously diverse, specifically 22 million Poles and 9.9 million non-Polish in speech and ethnicity. So where the fuck is your thing of like a Polish shot on the basis of nationality? I mean, one third of your country is not Polish of your new Polish state? Well, like six million of those were Jews, so. Right, yeah. He says that Actually, no, uh, like three million. So right. <laughs> <laughs> he says Poland would Poland would endure as a result tension with Soviet Russia over three point two million Ukrainians and two point two million Ruthenians and face further danger from one point seven million others, including especially Germans, Lithuanians and Czechs. Poland would continue to encompass an indigestible immigrant population of 2.7 million Jews considered by the Polish government as non-Polish racial, linguistic, and religious national minority. Not a mistake by the Polish government. (laughs) (laughs) So he says, here we see the allies playing freely and loosely with ethnic reality in Eastern Europe. That's close enough, you know. These Slavic people yeah yeah yeah. 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 Slavs and Jews and and Germans Wilson didn't know who the fuck any of these people were like he didn't know shit about this uh even less so the Jews that were writing his propaganda so it says in areas where the allies decided to hold plebiscites the inhabitants of the districts of Allenstein and Marienwerder which we were just talking yeah, about. Right. A supposedly ethnic gray area in East Prussia voted in 1920 to remain in Germany 460,000 to 15,000. What's shocking about that too is you would think that the, you would think, well, gee, Germany's being blockaded and G- Germany's being torn apart and Germany's still subject to, you know, allied depredations. Maybe even though I'm an ethnic German, maybe I don't want to join with Germany. Right. Like maybe I'd be better. I'd be better sure. off throwing my lot in with Poland. Right. Uh, but even then, people are like, "No, fuck that." Well, now, like literally, well, I mean, all of Europe and the Middle East is still voting to go to Germany. Like, <laughs> they they want to go live in Germany because it's better. But yeah, it's it's this. So the, there were a few plebiscites here. Well, and there were in, in Silesia, in parts of Silesia too. There were plebiscites where. Well, People that's what I'm getting to. Oh, okay. It says, Article 88 
of the Versailles Treaty provided for a plebiscite to be held in Upper Silesia, which was part of Germany but inhabited by a sizable Polish population and coveted by the Poles for its coal reserves and mines. The Allies held, held the plebiscite on March. Oh, there's going to be a lot of coal reserves. March twentieth, nineteen twenty-one. Sorry, bad, bad joke. <laughs> the Allies held the plebiscite on March twentieth, nineteen twenty-one, and the Germans won. Well over half the population voted to remain in Germany specifically. 717,000 votes versus 483,000 votes. The treaty, however, kept the final disposition of the area for the Allies to determine based on the strained but not unreasonable point that in some areas there would be significant majorities of either Poles or Germans, notwithstanding the fact that the Germans won the plebiscite overall. No general historical work on this part of the 20th century has elucidated that the Allies had in fact conducted a census that would allow them, with their complete freedom of action, to partition the area to the greatest degree possible to the benefit of the Poles, who, as it turned out, had lost the plebiscite. The subtlety of the Allied position was lost on the extreme Polish nationalists. Fearing after the plebiscite that Poland would lose all of Upper Silesia, armed irregulars under the Polish extremist Wojciechowski with the I won't even try with the physical support of the Polish government and tacit support of the French government moved into Upper Silesia on May 3rd 1921 unopposed by the French occupying forces the outraged moderate unopposed by the French occupying forces yes so there were French troops in Upper Silesia apparently so either that or they're talking about the French that were still in occupied in Germany but no it would have to be that they're yeah it says that the outraged moderate Weimar government protested to the Allied Supreme Council to no avail and was forced to support resurrected armed right-wing volunteers, the Fry Corps, to oppose the illegal proceedings. The enormity of the situation is illustrated by the parallel outrage of British Prime Minister David Lloyd George over the situation in a speech to the House of Commons on May 31st, 1921, in which he pointed out that, quote, either the Allies ought to insist upon the treaty being respected or they ought to allow the Germans to do it, not merely to disarm Germany, but to say that such troops as she has got are not to be permitted to take part in restoring order in Upper Silesia in what, until the decision comes, is their own province. That is not fair play. Fair play is what England stands for, and I hope she will stand for it to the end, unquote. In order to assure Poland of free and unfettered, quote, access to the sea, unquote, the Allies took the German province of West Prussia, which included the well-developed former medieval Hanseatic port of Danzig, and recast it as the Polish province of Pomerania and the internationalized city and surrounding district of Danzig. The new Polish territory of Pomerania held a significant number of Germans stemming from the medieval colonization of the area, especially during the period 1134-1290. See, mm, yes. see uh, other episodes. Under princes of the House of Anhalt and the slightly later German settlers introduced by the Teutonic Knights into the area of indigenous Baltic Prussian tribes and uninhabited wilderness, later to be known as East Prussia. The upshot of this complex ethnic interaction for understanding the realism of a Polish corridor that divided the German Republic of 1918 into two uneven parts, <clears throat> keeping in mind, so, so Germany still exists with East Prussia is still German, but now there's like a piece of another country running right through it. <laughs> so it would be like, 
I don't know, Greg, what's a, like, like if Canada took the New England corridor and like cut off, you know, like went right, right through like Vermont and, and uh, New Hampshire and took that and claimed that as part of Canada. And now Maine is still like you. Well, it's actually the way Alaska is right now, you know, right. but it's like. This is pretty significant. I mean, this is a very, very old territory. And, and uh, yeah, so now you have this thing cut off into two uneven parts. And then it says... And, the, and why do they need access to the sea? Is it so that they can get reinforced by Britain in the event of war with Germany? It, it almost seems like that's what they're thinking about, right? Yeah. I mean, it was economic reasons. I mean, right. why, why not give them... Well, I don't know how else you draw a line to the sea through Poland. I mean, I guess you could give Poland Lithuania and just... And then keep Germany intact. Yeah. I mean, it says that. And then they could, yeah, they could have a port at Klopedia. By this time, East Prussia, Danzig, and its expansive hinterland were over 95% German. Now, you know, again, after World War II, they solved that problem by just exterminating all those people. But at this time, it was still 95% German. <clears throat> the corridor between the German Danzig and German Pomerania remained an area of mixed settlement balanced roughly between German and Pole. The Danzig situation proved particularly dysfunctional because the Allies had to balance between the right of self-determination of the overwhelmingly German population to remain German and the economic necessities of Poland to have a functional access to the sea through a established facilities in the port of Danzig. To solve this situation, the Allies converted Danzig and its hinterland into an international zone, thus assuring Polis access to the sea through the port. The Allies thereby solved the immediate challenges of 1919 while characteristically victimizing Germany and creating another ostensible cause for the outbreak of World War II 20 years later. It can be generalized somewhat obviously that Hitler would be fortified in the development of a robust national movement in German domestic politics by such a situation. Less obviously, it could be added that in the event he actually came to power in Germany, he would initially have an almost inescapable path for foreign policy laid out for him in the misplaced Germans in Austria, Sudetenland, and Danzig. The point for a more realistic picture of Hitler in 1919 and reevaluation of his foreign policy later in the 1930s is that neither Hitler nor the Germans invented a rump Austria, nationalistically abused Sudetenland, and an internationalized Danzig. With full freedom of maneuver to create a stable Europe in 1919, the Allies chose to create national moral inequities that would not only assist Hitler in his rise to power, but also define the high points of his foreign policy once he was in control of Germany. And, and continue to be problems into the 21st century right and the i i i you know i we're going pretty long here but i have a few more things to add from the stolfi book do you want to say some more no, i mean do you, more why, why don't point? you just summarize the the final i'll, the final I'll try to get here. yeah okay so basically it took all their overseas colonies this is the next big thing yeah took all their overseas colonies so on the face German, of the globe German, three major uh, togo cameroon what's now namibia and, and tanzania and then samoa and half of guinea yeah the allies took every german colony on the face of the globe for redistribution among themselves <laughs> so <laughs> this it it's, says it's that, a mandate goy it's just and it, it says that uh <laughs> we're just we're just there to oversee it the poor people aren't developed enough so we have to now put it under british or french control he says if they had just announced it and carried it out germans would have been left with the unhappy but sobering fact of defeat in a great war and associated losses we lost we lose our shit 
The Allies, however, through some terrible combination of belief in their own wartime propaganda and yet bad conscience about the credibility of so severe an action, felt compelled to accuse the Germans of corruption and brutality. Such a quasi-gratuitous accusation impugned the honor of the German people. Right. I, been- I remember, is, what about the Belgians in Congo? Wasn't there some story about them, like, chopping people's hands off rubber? Well, the fact is, I, what I've read is that the German colonies were, I mean, even Hitler talks about how, like, in the German colonies. Well, the Germans are always the nicest to black people. Yeah, they're the nicest to black people. They were, like, <laughs> like they're educating them and they're helping them out compared to, compared to the more ruthless economic sector. French just cracking out the whip. Right. You know? And I mean, look, I'm not going to say that the Germans were just like the nicest people to the Africans, but I mean, like compared to again, compared to the big Democrats. And but so so it's saying such a quasi gratuitous accusation impugned the honor of the German people and would have been dangerously impolitic to make even if it were supported portable by evidence. No, the longer lasting colonial powers are more generally the more brutal ones like Portugal oh, yeah. was supposed to be like the most vicious in its treatment of natives. Yeah. And they, they held a lot of those places for 500 years. Yeah, so, well, I mean, we're figure. still holding, uh, you know, the, the Appalachian Mountains and the Midwest and everything else and the, the Western United States in the South uh, through, uh, you know, just depopulating, you know, and, and through disease and and, uh, expansion but so yeah he says it German so even if this was supported by evidence German German colonial administration however could be characterized as a firm but probably fairer and more efficient than that of any other power and by the mid-1930s basically it showed that a, a grave injustice had been done by depriving Germany of its colonies uh you know there were British historians who said that this is uh, that this idea there was a British historian R.W. Seton Watson drew up a tentative program of adjustments for the British government noting that quote the convenient thesis of Germany's unfitness to administer colonies is as untrue as it is insulting and should be recanted Uh, of course they didn't they didn't do this and then uh, all right I'll skip ahead the um Oh, yeah. He mentions how he compares it because of the half century in Africa prior to 1914. The Belgians, oh, little Belgium, little, we must save little Belgium. The Belgians, French, and British had made the greatest colonial inroads and not surprisingly have been associated with the cruel exploitation of the natives of Congo State by the Belgians, the extraordinarily aggressive occupation of Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia by the French, and reprehensible British wars against the South African Dutch republics. The latter imperialistically contrived aggression was linked with the strategic concept of a Cape to Cairo rail system and resultant probable British dominance in Africa. The concept culminated during the last Boer War in the infamous concentration of non-combatant Afrikaner women and children in temporary camps and the resulting deaths of approximately 30,000 through incompetence and neglect. (laughs) Yeah, you're not under blockade there. (laughs) Right. These fuckers don't have a leg to stand on. Again, this is crying out in pain as they strike you and there's also that german that pesky german uh, colony cutting up that british line from cairo to cape town and it's german east africa right right so in military air naval and air clauses of the treaty allies would proceed with such extraordinary convolutions even for versailles they intended to essentially disarm germany 
The situation was an enormity. Again, this guy is a military historian. The, the situation was an enormity because it would place that country, Germany, in immediate danger of foreign invasion from the east and west by tough competing national states, including, of course, France, Poland, and East, uh, Czechoslovakia. So, <clears throat> you know, this idea, it's like, okay, so it, it, you know what it reminds me of, Greg? We were watching, Mike and I were watching a clip of Alan Dershowitz on Rising, and they were talking about his Zionism, and this filthy kike is saying, like, no, I support a two-state solution with a with a disarmed Palestinian state. <laughs> he basically is making the claim, I, I support a two-state solution with Israel holding everything in terms of weapons and Palestinians getting nothing. Right. Like, we're going to disarm them of their rocks that they throw at our tanks. I mean, how, <laughs> it's just like, how can the, it's only Jewish chutzpah that can make such a claim with a straight face. You know, I mean, it would be, it would be like if Khrushchev came to the United States. Well, and only, the, but only also only depoliticized people that could believe that or take that as a credible suggestion. Right, right, right. Like I mean, Arabs would laugh at that. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, it's imagine like bra if, brainwashed Americans, sadly, uh, I mean, we obviously wouldn't take that seriously and no, nobody in our thing would take something like that seriously. But you can see people in America taking that kind of taking that sort of proposal seriously. Oh, well, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a two state solution and, and Israel keeps the guns and it's going to be Israel's going to be fair. Right. Yeah. Like, the naivete is I mean, no, this incredible. Would be like, really. Again, you can think about like Khrushchev banging his shoe on the podium in, 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 in you know, in the Cuban Missile Crisis and. And Khrushchev is like, I've come up with a proposal for world peace and, and mutual uh, getting along between the United States and the Soviet Union. You disarm of all your nukes and weapons and everything, and we'll just keep ours, you know? <laughs> and then we will have peace. And if you oppose this, clearly you're a terrorist that's against peace. I mean, it's just this again, Greg, the, the, this stuff has succeeded for 100 years over a hundred years because of one thing, the outrageousness of it, because of the big lie, because of the chutzpah of, of making the most extreme and bold-faced and one-sided and selfish demands in terms of the most moral, righteous, good, goody, goody, goody two-shoes, we're going to save the world, humanity, peace, and justice. It's that signature combination of like extreme moral high-handedness with the most brutal ruthlessness almost beyond ruthlessness because ruthlessness implies a lack of compassion yeah, this is there's like a sadism. cruelty there's a sadism to it there's a sadism to it this is the mindset that characterizes the american century this is the mindset that characterizes the settlement of world war one and even more so the settlement of world war ii and it continues to characterize american demands in for instance ukraine stolfi you know he, he's talking about from a strategic calculation this isn't a small thing because he says, obviously, the French, the French menace is, is obvious to Germany as a, just as a national state. The Polish frontier is a strategic disaster in terms of the great plane existing between the two states and the special danger because of the proximity of Berlin to the frontier. 
But then he even says Czechoslovakia. He says it's difficult to imagine Czechoslovakia attacking Germany, but the practical possibility in terms of a Czech peacetime army larger than the ground force of disarmed Germany illustrates the extreme right. situation. And armed by France. And armed by France. So, so again, these are things that you think, oh, Czechoslovakia's going to... But, I mean, the reality is what they're saying is with a straight face, okay, Germany, you're surrounded by all these enemies, uh, former enemies, we've taken your shit, and even a small patchwork state like Czechoslovakia gets the, gets more troops than you do. The German army was, uh, you know, limited to 100,000 men and it couldn't have tanks and it, I think it had, had a lim strict limitation on like artillery pieces and machine guns according to the No Versailles artillery heav heavier than 105 millimeter pieces and no heavy machine guns and no military aircraft at all. Hence, there could neither be an army air corps nor a German air force. So imagine that. No military aircraft, period. Period. And, and the, the Czech army was half a million men. I've, I've, I don't remember the number, but look it up real quick. But it yeah. was it was significantly, it was multiple times bigger, the Czech army, than the German army Yeah. in 1920. So Germany lay obviously helpless in the event of all-out attack or opportunistic border readjustment by any one of the powers noted. And, uh, you know, the... They also, um, you know, he talks about that this idea of how the Germans tried to sneak and cheat with the treaty, he dismisses it. He says, you know, that happened, but they, they exaggerate that. Um, he says, the Allied disarmament of Germany had proved to be so effective, in fact, that we could postulate the single most important technically oriented factor responsible for the German loss of World War II was the feeble rearmament in the short period from 1933 to the war's outbreak. So, like, give me a break. Um the, yeah, okay, the Czech, here it is. The Czech army in 1924 was 150,000. So 50% 50, 50 more than the German army. Yeah. For a much smaller country. And then, I don't know, the Polish army was way bigger than that. It had, like, real grievances with, with like, like, Czechoslovakia is not, <clears throat> you know, they haven't buried the hatchet for all time between Germany. They, they, they are freshly granted three million germans in sudetenland uh and, and have this position um so you know he talks about how hitler this this helped hitler um hitler would be aided in his expansion of the national socialist german workers party by the revulsion of most germans against article 227 of the treaty in which the allies and associated powers publicly arraigned Wilhelm II of Hohenzollern for, quote, a supreme offense against international they, morality and the want, sanctity of treaties. They wanted to do a Nuremberg, uh, Nuremberg trial sort of thing with Wilhelm II after World War One, but it was actually the Dutch that basically prevented that from happening because they accepted William II and, and protected him from a, a sort of show trial like that. Yeah, this is, this is just, you know, he says that most people, German or otherwise, would consider their intelligence badly handled by the Allied statement that a special tribunal will be constituted to try the accused, thereby assuring him the guarantees essential to the right of defense. It will be composed of five judges, one appointed by each of the following powers, namely the United States of America, Great Britain, France, Italy, and Japan. This single sentence illustrates an almost limitless disregard for fairness and justice on the part of the Allies and characterizes the time set by them in the interwar period and then in the same part of the treaty article 231 no german negotiator present to temper the wording 
and the article impugned the honor of the entire German nation and set in place vindictiveness as the main characteristic of the time. The article was not only psychologically calloused, a kind of glove thrown into the face of every person in the defeated nation, but also historically implausible. The article stands as a monument to the coalition of allies that had become so devoured by its own wartime propaganda. The allies, more so than the Germans, employed grossly distorted images of evil in portraying their foe in order to attract allies during the war and to keep their own people in the fight. It is easy to forget, for example, that the French army suffered a strategic-level mutiny in late 1916. Remember me talking right. about that? which illustrated the closeness of the struggle and demanded that the Allies employ exaggerated propaganda as part of the war effort. <clears throat> Faced with similar crises, the Allied governments failed to separate themselves from their own accusations of evil on the part of the Germans and re-enter the world of historical reality in setting place the times for the next 20 years in Europe. Taken by itself, Article 231 represents an enormity that significantly explains the existence and effectiveness of the parallel enormity of Hitler's strident propaganda. The article follows necessarily in its entirety, quote, the Allied and associated powers affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the allied and associated governments and their nationals have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Germany and her allies. That's the big clause. Right. It pins everything. Like, I did everything wrong. It was my fault. I started it. I'm a bad guy. Except or we're going to keep like, we're just going to attack you and, st and keep starving you. Her Herbert Hoover, prominent member of the American delegation, received his first copy of the draft at four o'clock in the morning and was greatly disturbed by his first overall view. He later wrote that, quote, hate and revenge, unquote, ran through the political and economic passages and that, quote, conditions were set up upon which Europe could never be rebuilt or peace come to mankind, unquote. William C. Burlett officially designated expert advisor on the American Commission, resigned on May 17, 1919, in protest against the draft treaty, writing that, quote, our government, the U.S., has consented now to deliver the suffering peoples of the world to new oppressions, subjections, and dismemberments, a new century of war, unjust decisions of the conference in regard to the Tyrol, Thrace, Hungary, East Prussia, Danzig, the Tsar Valley, make new international conflicts certain. And others, uh, John Christian Smuts, distinguished and influential British representative at the conference from the Union of South Africa, warned in a letter to President Wilson, mid-May 1919, the treaty, quote, may become an even greater disaster than the war was. These men, in these few comments, scathingly indicted the Allies for establishing the conditions required for yet another conflict, and the comments were prophetic war would come in 1939, still completely within the shadow cast by the treaty. And he talks about the counterproposals that the Germans put up, how they, did, they rejected them, and uh, finally, uh, the, the thing about what I said about the, uh, the cover letter. So, you know, this is why um, Leon de Grell wrote that book, Hitler Born at Versailles. You know, I really see it as there's two like way the two worldviews in, in competition here. 
And the reason that we're sympathizing with the Germans is not because we are Germans, but just because they are the ones behaving honorably and rightly and and who aren't resorting to outrageous propaganda and and just and uh, warmongering and and hypocrisy to adjudicate their disputes with with uh, nations that are basically their brothers. I mean, nations of similar size and, and similar cultural background. Right. Whereas the the Western allies, Britain and America and France, were just completely uh, hypocritical and and pompous and arrogant. And it's the same attitude that, like you've been saying, it's the same attitude that we see in American foreign policy to this day. Right. And this is, uh, you know, that that um, like can you ima- can you imagine if we had an American foreign policy predicated on uh, mutual under or on just honor and dealing with the Russians or the Chinese man to man, nation to nation. These are these are our interests. We understand your interests. Let's make a deal. Right. It's uh, it's something that we, we are uh, incapable of. Do- we cannot do that. We cannot do or, that. Not we, but Zog. Zog cannot do that. And uh, it's like lost the ability to do it. And I, I, I would go so far as to say that this is a, a, a result of democracy. Because when you run your country as a democracy, you have to resort to these propaganda, to yes. insane propaganda, and then you have to make these outrageous demands. Yes, yeah, and it's and and it's something, and that, you have to assign guilt. You know, it's funny because uh, you're you're, you know, the propaganda of like a, a particular kind of democracy of of like a, a a plutocracy where it's not clear who the rulers are, actually are and where it's multi parties mm-hmm. arguing among themselves. Because you know, the funny thing about people have pointed out when they talk about totalitarianism so-called how uh stalin and hitler both were different from like you said the metternich era where it's like deliberately saying this is not an agreement between peoples this is an agreement between monarchs and that what distinguishes even though you could say like hitler and and stalin to just take them as examples are autocratic and in some ways more autocratic than any monarch ever was uh, in terms of like total control and rule over the country. Right. The basis of their legitimacy, because they were both socialist leaders ostensibly, uh, you know, one international Marxist socialist, the other German national socialist, the basis of their legitimacy is still the people. So there's still this need for the people to approve of something or the people to say that, you know, the the consent of the people, but because of the nature of it, because it is an autocracy, Stalin, for instance, could claim in 1939 that, Oh, you know what? Nazism is cool. We love the Germans, you know? (laughs) And then like a few years later, be like, they're the worst, you know, the, the fascists are the the, the ultimate enemy of mankind and could just do this about face. You know, the classic again, that that George Orwell got from 1984. Uh, there's no need to maintain the fiction. You can just because you're Stalin, you could just change what the official story is. And anybody that's like, well, I thought, I thought yesterday it was the other way around. <laughs> Shoot him! You know, it's a, a counter-revolutionary right there, enemy of the people. Um, yeah, but in, in the Western, you know, democracies <laughs> where the people are supposedly in charge, no, it's 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 not that way at all. You have a right. fi- you have a fake, or you have a your real elite is 
hidden or doesn't really sh- call themselves the real elite. You have a, like a puppet president uh, like Joe, Joe Biden or any any of the, any of the presidents, even Wilson. I mean, was a, was a puppet to a certain to a, a large degree. I mean, you could actually make the claim, Greg, that it's it's uh, you, you could say that democracy, liberal democracy. I mean, if we can call it that. And again, I know that's a misnomer. Because really, there's nothing liberal about it, and there's nothing democratic about it. But you could say that liberal democracy is in a process of self-radicalization. That liberal democracy, the thing that they say about the Nazis, that they've said about the Nazis, that the Nazis were driven to keep radicalizing as the war went on. And that's why the Holocaust, you know, they will gas more Jews and more Jews and more Jews. (laughs) They say that about the Nazis. I think it's actually a... um, it's a and, and you know there's a famous historian of fascism who's a real piece of shit but uh he wrote a book um the anatomy of fascism where he claims that fascists have to kind of step on the gas and radic- keep radicalizing till they are destroyed uh and i guess that meaning that like the soviets the opposite happened you know the soviets backed off on a lot of their stuff and then just fell apart mm-hmm. um I think that this system of liberal democracy that's running this country, the the present epoch of the world that we're living under, and the, the Zog, the country, the, the government, the regime that's running us, it almost is driven to just keep pushing this. It can't ever admit that it was the bad guy or that it did bad things or that it's responsible for something. It will do that selectively against its own citizens. Right, it admits, it admits that whites in america are responsible or in europe are responsible for colonialism racism uh all the jews dying and so on and so forth and maybe that's how we should end this is that striker joe jordan he he said a long time ago and it's one of the things that inspired my uh the speech that i gave about the mass expulsion of whites from american cities and it's one of the most striking concepts i've thought about in a long time is that the civil rights act was the treaty of versailles for white america Right. Uh, I'd never thought of that before until he said it, but it makes total sense. And if it, there's a perfect historical kind of parallel there. But as I, I said in that speech, we did not lose a war. We did not lose a war. You know, and that's the thing that Stolfi is saying in that book, that most of these things you well, can the, just... The, I would say the Treaty of Versailles is the Treaty of Versailles for Americans. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, well that's, <laughs> wait, that, that's the ironic in a weird thing, way. Is that, is that, you know, um, Oswald Mosley said that, you know, if Britain wins, they're going to lose two. If Britain wins World War II, they're going to lose two. They, they also, Britain will also lose. And that manifestly, I mean, that just happened. Uh, Britain lost their entire empire and are now like they just as of when we're recording this got their first non-white prime minister so um, they Based. yeah Britain is is has fallen very far very fast since 1939 uh, but we can actually say that it's true if white America had their own treaty of Versailles imposed on them with the Civil Rights Act and all the ensuing civil rights legislation, we could say it's clear that American whites also lost the Second World War. The loss of that war for American whites, the American whites who fought it, lost it. That's why the Civil Rights Act and all that legislation was imposed on them. And and that's where another way in which we as white Americans and white nationalists can look to Hitler and his movement for inspiration 
because we're in the same in that respect we're in the same situation in that we're dealing with an unjust guilt against our entire people and so many uh exploitative terms things being ground out of us our very basis for existence ground down and taken away from us and they call themselves moral and us immoral while they do it that's really uh what we have in america today yeah yeah i couldn't say it any better myself warren so thanks for coming on and uh heil hitler heil hitler greg Germany will pay war reparations for all damage done to Allied civilians and their property. Responsibility for the outbreak of the war rests solely on German shoulders. But a few of the demands of the Treaty of Versailles. Impossible, do you say? They will break us. But don't you see that's the point? They want to break us. And who do I mean by them? I mean the Reds! These fools who spread a disease called communism to empty-headed dreamers. Look who's talking! The most effective medicine is a bullet! That's the best way to cure us of these idiots! Marx was a Jew! The Communist Party is run by Jews! I began life as a quite gifted artist. We surrendered in November at a time when we were perched on the edge of victory. Betrayed by the cowards and the traitors within our ranks. We must join together for a greater Germany. agenda must include elimination of the Jews. We disagree. It's just not feasible. Immigrants, Jews? Stealing everything we work for? The German Jews. Any party that comes to power will surely guarantee... We're talking about Jews here! They're not citizens. They have no rights. You're supposed to be nationalists. better. The turning point in my life was when the blindfold was ripped from my eyes. The building is surrounded. No one may leave. Any trouble, you will be shot. We will hang the profiteers. Crush the communists. We will disinfect our country of the Jewish moment. Compromise is not possible.